find the baller. My life is more than money and jewelry. My story's so crazy, dog. I said make a movie behind the baller. I went from playing sports to exotic whips. Ain't gotta tell me, dog. I know I'm the shit behind the baller. My life is more than money and jewelry. My story's so crazy, dog. I said make a movie behind the baller. I went from music exec to this podcast. Now I finally feel at home and laugh behind the baller. <laughs> yeah, motherfuckers. This is the world-famous award-winning Behind the Baller podcast coming to you live in stereo and AK High Doge Finishing Sound. I am your host, Ben Baller, a.k.a. KTZ. You know what I'm saying? K-Town Hooligan, Mr. K-Town, the Koreatown hustler. I couldn't let, you know, Monday come around and just have nothing. We're going to figure something out. I don't want no blank space. You know, I came back to a week gang-banging, yang-banging, actually, sorry. But I want to do a little something special for the people who kind of jumped on maybe at episode 200. Some of the people jumped on at episode 213. Some people jumped on at 150. You know, in the first, I think, you know, 25 episodes or so, whatever, I did the K-Town Hustler series. So this is like the best part of the K-Town Hustler series. Miles and Jordan had kind of cut up, you know, some of the greatest hits of that, you know, that very popular series right there. And I know I'm going to bring you part three, but I wanted to give you guys this. So you guys had something to vibe to, you know, hey man, that shit was recorded over two years ago. So it's kind of cool to listen to so many stories. I was reminiscing on Twitter spaces with uh, a couple people talking about the Don, the situation, talking about when I first met Ye and um, all those times, whatever. And like, again, man, don't care if me and Ye become friends again or not. It ain't like we was ever super close. We've always just been cool. We've always been, you know, a little bit better than acquaintances. You know, we work together, whatever. And, and um, I don't know. It, you know, really, I fuck with Cud. And it's not that I'm taking sides. It's one person is really actually my friend and one person isn't. So that's all what it is. But the K-Town Hustler series has some shit. There's some gems in here. A lot of craziness in my life. You guys, a little, you know, get to understand a little bit more of my background. You know, um, more importantly, the fact that I was Ben Baller and I was who I was before any social media existed. So, without further ado, BTB Army, K-Town Hustler Series, Greatest Hits. Appreciate y'all. I'll see you guys very soon in a few days. Today, we're going to get into some shit. We're going to get into some real shit. Okay, I want to get into the deep history about how I came up and the many hustles I had before I became a jeweler up till right around where I started out as a jeweler. So this shit might take a few episodes because like, this shit might take four episodes, maybe five. I have no idea because goddamn, my life is crazy as fuck and never ever have I ever went into full detail about the 90s anywhere. My wife doesn't even know 95% of these stories I'm about to spit. All right, so we're going to get right into it, man. My sister had been running a dope-ass fashion magazine called Detour. And it was low-key lit. It was like a really respected fashion magazine. And she didn't get paid much, but her juice card was crazy. You know what I'm saying? And um, I was DJing like random-ass little spots, like underground spots and whatever, like super hip-hop shit. And... Uh, I would go anywhere, you know what I'm saying? That, that would that would pay me $100 a night, and, and that was fucking cool with me. Finally, my sister, 
she was connected pretty heavy and um she connected me with the owner of the world famous Roxbury nightclub and that's where I met um Ely Ely Samaha and he was a crazy Lebanese dude this motherfucker was like Italian mafia style like this dude was, was a trip he owned like three or four club restaurant clubs supper clubs around town and they were all popping at the time this was like during the Brent Bolthouse era anybody over 30 something should definitely know who Brent Bolthouse was this guy is a legend in fucking LA nightlife this dude was way before any of that fucking SBE shit that or any of that fucking shit or was it SBC or what the fuck is SB whatever the fuck it was whatever Sam Nazarian's uh bullshit ass clubs were um and bolt house was just kind of like just becoming to be like the hollywood nightlife king and at the time he was running a restaurant called babylon and um ellie owned that shit is it eli eli i'm sorry ellie it's eli so anyways um this place babylon is, is right on robertson and like neil melrose so it's like um right where uh sir is if you ever watch that show the vanderpump rules whatever it's leader lisa vanderpump's club uh restaurant and uh, it's funny, I shot my one of my reality show series there, episodes there with Rob Kardashian. Anyways, um, I got a job promoting the Roxbury on Thursday nights. I was handing out flyers, handing out club, uh, little cards. And anytime someone came in with my car with a stamp on it, I'd get a dollar for it. And, um, you know, I was out hustling. I was going out to other clubs, promoting, trying to get people to come. I was going to bar one. I was going to fucking all over the place. And um, Thursday nights was like a cool night. And once in a while, you know, I'd see a few big, big celebs and it's like Keaton and Ivy Wayans and shit. And like, um, by random luck, I met Mark Wahlberg there and on my Thursday night and we became cool friends. And then we end up hanging out and kicking it, getting high, fucking around, getting in trouble. And we'll get more into that in a little bit. But um, actually, no, fuck that. We're going to get back into it right now. And then we'll get into it because we, we and Mark Wahlberg are still homies to this day. And, you know. I always knew he'd be somebody dope, and it was crazy how he became a fucking enormous star that he is now. I mean, like, ridiculous star. I mentioned before that in high school, there was a dude that was, like, super lit, was always, like, you know, moving and shaking. His name was Guy Siri. I think I brought his name. I definitely brought his name up in the podcast. Had to early on. And, you know, Guy's been involved with, like, Uber and um, managing Madonna. And he just was, he was plugged in early, and um, he was just a fast talker. And he was just, he always had it going on. I just ran into fucking Guy, actually, at the NBA Finals the uh the Golden State Warriors, this is the most recent finals. And guys like friends with every single fucking major, major person in Hollywood. He's so connected, it's not even funny. This dude was best friends with Russell Simmons. He's like really close with Anthony Kiedis. And just he's plugged in with everyone. He's still relevant and everything. And like, you know, he don't know this. And I've mentioned it a bunch of times. You know, he was my motivation coming in because he was, you know, we were we were roughly the same age. He was a great above me, but this was the dude, he was the reason why I didn't want to go to college. Like fuck basketball, fuck football. I want to run with Guy Osiri. He was, I knew he was going to go places. I just knew it. And um, there was a few dudes from Fairfax and from Beverly that were making moves. And I just knew that they were. And they still ended up, you know, popping off. And um, some of them just ain't doing much now, but they, they, their papers is solid. And Guy was one of them. And like when I got out of college, you know, like years had gone by, you know what I'm saying? Like it had been like five years since I seen him. And when I came back, he was already lit. Like he was already popping. He had bands. He was a fucking head of A&R. He was already lit and as time went on he just got more lit and lit and um you know here i am i'm a promoter at a fucking nightclub that he could get into any time and like he's just he's you got a credit card and fucking uh business uh, you know a fucking expense account all that shit and um mark invites me out one night with some random dudes he did a movie with i forgot what movie it was at the time 
And so we go to this party and we're up in the hills and we go to, we end up at Madonna's house. And I'm like, oh shit. Now you gotta remember, man, Madonna might not sound like that much now for you kids, but like, yo, limit, listen, man. Lady Gaga, fucking Ariana Grande, and like she was Beyonce level then. This was like literally that big of how fucking legendary Madonna is, you know? And we end up at the house and um they start kind of giving a shit for being there, whatever. This is, you know, Mark Wahlberg's done with the Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. And uh he's like Calvin Klein ads and everything. He's killing it. I see Joe Pesci. And I like bug out. I don't really care about celebrities too much. I'm from LA, but like I saw Joe Pesci. I was like, oh shit, it's Joe Pesci. And um, so a fight broke out. And Mark ended up knocking a motherfucker down, like down the driveway, like knocked his ass out. And uh, it was fucking Guy Osiri. And I was like, oh shit. And I didn't, I don't think Guy didn't see me. And I didn't know what to say because it was like, it was, it was crazy. And Mark was a fucking, Mark was a beast, man. Mark, first of all, was, he's from fucking, you know, he's from Boston. South Boston, the motherfucker was from the, you know, he's, he didn't come up rich at all. He's, he was a fighter, he was a scrapper, motherfucker was buff as fuck. He's in good shape. And um, I found out later, man, from like, from Mark, for other people, like, I had to go, like, he was, he had nightmares about the shit, you know what I'm saying? And part of me was like, yeah, fuck this dude, man. He, he ain't trying to put me on, so fuck him. But, um, I mean, I think about it now, and if I was on, would I put somebody else on? I have no idea, you know, I was in that position then. Anyways, going on. I met Mark at the Roxbury and, and that, that was my dog. You know what I'm saying? This was fucking 24 years ago. But uh, going back to working at the club, you know, I hated wearing a suit. I felt fucking corny as fuck. I felt out of place, you know. I, I was broke. But um, even though I was broke, like broke was a mentality. You know what I'm saying? Like it was like, it was it was different. Like I was, I had no money, but I wasn't broke mentally. I, I was so optimistic. I, like I knew that, I was going to be, I was going to make it. I was going to do some shit, you know, and just going to the club, I just felt like there was going to be, you know, some sort of a network out there, you know, and like every Thursday night there was this DJ and his name was uh, Rob. I don't remember if it was Rob G or something. Fuck, such a long time ago. But the promoters of that night were called Artist Group Network, AGN. Later on, these guys would start a uh, a hip hop group, a local hip hop group. They kind of blew up a little bit. They're called the Cottonmouth Kings. It's fucking totally crazy. Brad X, my boy Lou, man, I don't, you know, shout out to Rob and Brad X. I ain't seen, I saw Rob not that long ago, but I ain't seen Brad in him forever. And it's just crazy how, you know, that the world is so small and you just cross paths and everything. And anyways, Rob, the DJ, um, I would listen to his sets because he was a professional, you know, he's, he's a legitimate put on nightclub DJ, professional DJ. And he'd start off almost every week. He would start off the night when it was early on when no one was really dancing, the club just opened. He'd start off with ton of, a heartbeat. By Tana Gardner. And that song was, man, bro, like, Heartbeat, it make it feel so sweet. Like, Miles, man, cue that song up. Cue, cue Heartbeat by Tana Gardner. Man, I love that fucking song. Like, you know, so many hip-hop artists, like, big hip-hop artists sample that beat. And, like, even, like, De La Soul, Buddy, the remix, this shit was, this was like the disco era of clubs. In the clubs, they're playing like disco, um, pop house music, like um, Hathaway, like what is love and all that shit and fucking Robin S, Show Me Love and all that stuff. And once in a while they play hip hop, you know, like they would get a little lit. And um, this was the time when Brian Austin Green was promoting, Brian Austin Green from 90210 was promoting um, Bar One. 
So that was like our opposing club. And they had the cooler club. They had the doper bitches. They had, they had, they had, he had hoes on that motherfucker. And my boy DJ Tony Stewart was uh, Brian Austin Green's DJ. And it was like, he was, uh, he was lit, man. I know Tony's still around now. I see him once in a while pop up on social media. And um, Roxbury is a legendary motherfucking nightclub if you don't know. But this wasn't the golden best era. This was like towards the end of like the, the not necessarily, but yeah, it was like a slight decline of the club because um, it went on you know, for a while after that, but, you know, they made the fucking movie about it, you know, Night at the Roxbury, but, like, back in, like, the early, like, super early 90s, when Roxbury opened up, like, you go there any fucking night, and you're gonna run into, like, 89, 90, you go in there, and you'll see Madonna, Mike Tyson, Prince, you know, Magic, fucking Jack, every single gigantic, huge A-list celebrity, like, not, you go now, and be like, oh, shit, I saw Future, and I saw fucking... I don't know, man. Some fucking rapper that just, it does, it's really not that big of a deal. This shit is like a big fucking deal. And like, this was, you know, four years later from that. But, you know, Prince and a, and a few others I'd see, you know, once in a while. But I'm from LA again, you know, so I didn't really care about that type of shit. I just wanted to DJ so bad because I was a DJ and I was trying to, trying to get on and I'm here fucking promoting. And so that, well, you know, that headline DJ, Rob, one day he went out to do a commercial. It was for like Pepsi or Mountain Dew. And, um, it was a skydiving commercial. And like the next day or something, I found out that he died. So he was skydiving in the commercial and um, his parachute didn't open and the backup didn't open either. And he fucking died. I was like fucking bugged out. I was like, oh shit. So the backup DJ on Thursday night was a dude named Trevor. And Trevor began to cover Thursday nights and like for a few months, he was on and I was like, fuck man, I got it, man, they ain't got no backup DJ, man. There's, I'm hoping these motherfuckers, you know, pick me and like, I'm trying to get on. And like, you know, I found out that dude had a drug problem and you know, he wasn't a dick. He wasn't problematic or anything. He was just, he just was, he would be all over the place, but he was a good DJ when he was on, he's on. And then, and then he'd have his off nights. And, um, sometimes he wouldn't have the, the club dancing heavy. And back then, if you were DJing, it was stressful as hell. Like you had to have the people DJ, you know, on the club, like dancing, You'd have to have a dance floor packed, people dancing, really busting moves and everything. And um, if people walked off the floor because you know you played a song you didn't like, you know that they didn't like, you know it was a bad thing. So you did whatever you could to keep them on there. So you had to you had to play hits. You know you couldn't play like you couldn't really experiment so much. You know it was totally different. Even though I fuck with underground clubs, you couldn't put no, play no underground hip hop over there because it just wouldn't pop. And I didn't really fuck with underground clubs at this point because my overall scratching skills wasn't like on par with like. Homicide. Like, Homicide was one of the fucking dopest fucking DJs in the world. Shout out to my boy Craig, and he's one of my best friends, you know. And um, there's battle DJs out there that would go crazy, and this was like a different thing. And like, back then, you go to an underground club with all these, you know, super hip hop clubs, it'd be like 95% dudes, you know. This was just like, here's what it is. But um, back in the day, even the club days, even if you're popping, not everyone had the same records. And I had, I was really like, I was a record hoarder, and I was, I had plugged in, and I had records. I still kept all my records. I was DJ. I practiced at home and everything. And I, my mixes were on point. And um, even some of the record pools, the major record pools that were servicing all the DJs, they couldn't get the exclusive joints early. But anyways, while I'm promoting this club and other spots that um, that Eli owns, his wife, that you know, the girl he's married to, is a famous actress named Tia Carrera. And um, I ended up being a part-time assistant for her because I work for Eli, you know. And... Um, to be truthful, you know, we're supposed to back our Asian people and, and, but man, like she was such a bitch. She was so bossy and she just, fuck, I just hated working for her. And fuck, like one day I had to fucking bring her some color contacts to the set of Wayne's World. She was a star of Wayne's World, that movie. 
and I had to bring a set of contacts to Wayne's World too. And uh, she was like, yeah, bring my aqua um, contacts from my medicine cabinet, whatever my drawers. I was like, some shits look all the same to me. So I brought back a, a set and she was like, no, these are green. You got to go back and get me my fucking aqua ones. And I was like, man, like really? So I got to go all the way back up to her fucking house. And um, by the way, I'm borrowing my sister's car. So this fucking sucked. Or I bought my cousin's car and it just sucked, you know, driving to all that stuff. And um, I go back in the hills, I get the right ones. And uh, I couldn't quit on her because I, you know, I needed the job. One night, right across the street from the Roxbury, and the Roxbury now is Pink, Pink Taco. At one point, it became Miyagi's, which was like a fucking legendary ass spot too. I didn't really fuck with it so much. And it's crazy, crazy fucking backstory. One of the other dudes from school that was popping, his name is Larry Pollock. Larry Pollock owns, um, is it the Saddleback? Whatever the fuck, the Saddleback? fucking restaurant the bar that's on fucking sunset right there on the sunset strip where they have the horse and shit charlie's angels and whatever and he owned uh miyagi's too and that place was fucking he had that place cracking and this dude used to do parties in high school when i was at school he always had parties and this dude didn't come from no money he was just a shrewd ass shrewd fucking super shrewd jewish business dude and the crazy thing about this whole shit that goes full motherfucking circle is I've known this dude forever in the club business this dude bought a mansion in Calabasas way the fuck back. You want to talk about some Forrest Gump shit? One day, Drake invites me to his crib. He just bought this new crib. He's like, yo, come to my house. And I pull up to the crib. I'm like, yo, dog. Bro, my boy used to own this crib. He's like, who the fuck's your boy? I'm like, Larry Paul. Like, How the fuck do you know Larry? Everyone in the house, 40, CJ, like security guards, they all knew like, yo, listen, what the fuck you talking about? And I'm like, Bro, I went to high school with this fool, bro. He owned Miyagi's, he owned fucking Dublin's, he owned fucking Saddleback, all this shit. And they're like, bro, he wrote the names of those clubs on this thing. And that's like the legendary Drake's crib where the fucking waterfall and the pool and everything is. And Drake was like, what the fuck? Fuck that dude, man. That dude fucked me over on this house. Like, you know, he made me do karaoke at his club and didn't discount the crib. And it's just crazy. So anyways, that club after the Roxbury, you know, my um, high school fucking alumni, one of my classmates fucking bought that spot. Going back to the story, I'm so sorry, man. Being Tia Kerr's assistant across the street the, the, from the nightclub from, from, from Roxbury was another nightclub called Carlos and Charlie's. That actually was the club where Eddie Murphy got in a fight and um, Danny Terry was talking about the story and was it Raw or Delirious? I forgot, but he gets in a fight at the nightclub and he gets sued. That was the club he got in a fight at and it's just crazy historical Hollywood history there. That club ended up turning into the legendary club Dublin's Okay, and like Dublin's is was popping Monday nights at Dublin's. I was a DJ with Dave Orlando, and it was a Bolt House, you know, production. It was a Bolt House promoted night, and I was a DJ there. This is later, later on, and um, Jay Z shouted the club out because I was a DJ there. You know what I'm saying? And Jay Z shot on us on his hit song, "Give It to Me," "Give It to You," with, with Pharrell singing on it, and he says, "Bubbling at Dublin's." And he's referring to the night I used to DJ at. You know, Miles, cue that song up, man. With girls from Club Cheetah, the Club Amnesia, the Peanuts in LA, Bubbling and Dublin, Candy. Yeah, you know what I'm saying, motherfuckers, man. I've been, I've been on, man. I, I, listen, man, I've been Ben Baller. I was who I was before fucking social media ever existed. So, anyways, that place was called Carlos and Charlie's. And uh, one night I'm there waiting on, on Tia, and I fucking met Christopher Walken there because he was a. Uh, a co-star in Wayne's World 2 as well and that was fucking surreal because it's the king of New York that's a different level like of mean that shit so now to the moment of truth finally one night 
at the Roxbury nightclub, this dude Trevor does not show up. He's smoking crack, true story, doesn't show up. And I tell the manager, I'm like, yo, man, you about to have a fucking club open up without a DJ? Are you fucking kidding me right now? Fuck this, man. Come on, let me get my records. Let me get my fucking records, please. So, you know, the manager was like, yeah, man, fuck it. Go get your fucking records, man. And, and, and I was like, all right, cool. So I run and go get my records. Um, I live right down the street, thank God. And I brought my boy's car. Go down to the fucking club and grab my records. You know, I live like literally three, four minutes away. And mind you, this was the age in, in LA when you could drive from the center of Hollywood to deep downtown LA in 15 minutes. Like you can drive from downtown LA to Sherman Oaks in, at fucking four o'clock and get there in 20 minutes. And it's crazy how much fuck shit has gone on since then because fucking traffic's so goddamn bad now. Anyways, I got back to Roxbury in like 15, 20 minutes with my records and I had my first night as a real club DJ at a major nightclub, like a fucking real famous fucking nightclub whether it was on a decline or not, it was a fucking super fucking famous nightclub. And I got my fucking first night DJing and I fucking killed that shit. And um, from that point on, it was game over. I was rocking Thursday nights for a while, you know, until like, and I'm popping, like it was dope. It felt like nothing, it was nothing, no no other. And uh, I was getting a hundred bucks a night, so it wasn't really shit, but it helped. I was able to just, I was struggling, but I was able to get shit going. And I heard from this one guy who uh, was a manager at 2020 Videos. It's fucking random as fuck, but he was giving me a bunch of free porn videos and shit, all kinds of stuff. I go in there and a bunch of things, and um, and it's fucking funny. And uh, it was crazy because it was right on the corner of Laurel Canyon and Ventura. It's a fucking FedEx there now, and like a Blaze Pizza or some shit, whatever. But uh, he told me he's like, "Hey man, Jack Nicholson and a few other people, including Denzel Washington, opened a new uh, bar like club on Melrose." And I'm like, "Word, okay." And so you know, I find out later that, yeah, Denzel's opening up a new Jamaican restaurant called Creek Alley. And there was like no one, you know, there was no information on it or anything else. But it was a full bar as well. It wasn't just a restaurant. It was a full bar. And they're going to be open until 2 a.m. And this was like, you know, maybe more than a month before it was even opened. And I, um, you know, I was begging people for information so I can get a job there. And uh, nobody had no info. No one had no plugs or nothing. So I would just wait outside the, the address and every day I waited, you know, for like, not that long, like maybe four days. And finally, one day I saw Denzel walk to his Porsche and I pulled up right up on him. And I was like, hey, man, um, remember, this is post Malcolm X Denzel. Like this motherfucker is super lit now. He's beyond major, in enormous fucking celebrity. And I was like, yo, man, can I give you my mixtape? And he's like, we trying to sell it. And I was like, no, no, no. You know, I know you like hip hop. And uh, I just want to let you know, like, I can set the ambiance for your spot, for your bar. And, um. You know, I know you like, I'm telling you, like, if I'm not, if I'm not dope, I'll, I'll work for a year for free. And he's like, well, this ain't a club, you know, I was like, but you know, I was like, I know you got a full DJ booth. And at the time, like people in New York City, they were already doing this shit, like at Moomba and just dope ass spots that were like restaurants and turning into like, you know, like a supper club type of thing. But like, you know, he had a sound system there and everything. So he took the tape, he smiled, took off in his Porsche, you know, and I made sure on that tape, I had Nas halftime. I had fucking New York State of Mind. I had a couple of things. I had Farsight on there, what was current. And, um. I had heard Denzel like Nas and shit. So anyways, a week later, I get a page on my pager. I don't have any, we didn't have fucking cell phones back then. You know I mean? There were cell phones existed, but they're too expensive. And like, um, I get a page and this girl, Tish, hits me up. And she's like, yeah, you know, she's the office manager. Like, hey man, bring your records. You start this Friday. You know, it's like, it wasn't opening night. It was like the week after. And um, I'm a DJ that night. And uh, the pay again wasn't that great, but I was hungry as a motherfucker. And speaking of hungry, the food was fucking flames. It was amazing. It was the first time I ever ate Jamaican food, and I fell in love right away. Like right there, I was like, yo, 
this shit is crazy. I had curry goat, you know, I you know, first time having uh, jerk chicken, having festival and like fucking um, Aki and, and, you know, having cola champagne and ting and just, it was just so fucking insane. Like it was, Jamaican food is like my top three favorite foods in life. Like it's just, it's crazy. And so like right off top, I, I just started killing the night. I'm just, I'm playing all the shit and playing funk. I'm playing Earth, Wind and Fire. I'm playing everything, cool shit, everything. Cause they didn't really want too much hip hop. And the place is fucking jamming. Place is popping like a motherfucker. And like even Monday nights there, which was like unheard of, was lit. You know, and so I was asked to DJ resident, um, be the resident DJ for Friday and Saturday nights. And um, shit was so popping. I started actually coming just like in the middle of the week, like on a Tuesday and Wednesday. And like they'd have jazz nights, or whatever. I ended up just popping up doing random DJ sets. And um, I got a salary of $500 a week, which was like insane for me. That was a lot of money back then, you know. And on top of that, I began to DJ all these exclusive parties for like these celebrities that would show up. Like Queen Latifah was a big, you know, um, she attended the, the spot a lot. She would frequent it. And um, um, I'd mentioned in the Jordan Woods episode, you know, I DJ Jada Pinkett's birthday party there. And Jada Pinkett's party is where, shit, man, it was like, that's where I met so many fucking celebrities, mostly a lot of black celebrities and like a lot of NBA players and everything. And like, I got to reconnect with Jason Kidd there. And um, now that people know I went to Albany, you know, um, I played against Jason Kidd in high school. You know, he went to St. Joseph's. And I was in Alameda, you know, and um, I went to Albany. So, like, you know, they're in our conference. So, you know, also I played at Cal and, like, um, Jason got there the year after. Um, he, he got there when I, when, I, when I left, Jason got in. We had mutual homies. He dated a chick from my high school. And, you know, we just caught up. We, we chopped it up and shit. Also, you know, I met Tupac that night at Jada's party. Uh, she was obviously super close with him. And it was funny. I That was the first time, um, not the first time I've seen Dr. Dre. I've seen Dr. Dre many times at concerts and stuff because NWA is my favorite group. But um, I saw Dr. Dre get in a fight with Michelle And I was a huge fucking Michelle fan. Like, goddamn, No More Lies. I love that fucking song. And, man, everyone was fucking there at that, at that restaurant, man. Like, Martin Lawrence. Fuck, I can't even begin to tell you. Like, stars were even made in there. That were, that were like, they had a jazz night there. They had this um, R&B Live that this dude Billy Hammond did. And Billy Hammond's still doing some kind of entertainment thing. He's, he's, he's in there because I, uh, I see cats fuck with him, like Cedric the Entertainer. And Cedric's my guy. Shout out to Ced. A uh, bunch of other people and um, Chris Tucker used to pull up there when he was broke. He wasn't even put on yet, but Chris Tucker was fucking with Death Row and Death Row was heavy, heavy present in Creek Alley. And uh, there was just so much motivation because I would see people broke and then later see him pull up in a Land Cruiser. And if you had a Land Cruiser back then, like, oof, like Heavy D had a Land Cruiser. And this was just, this was like a sick ass car. Like you'd see Benzes and just like, dope ass whips would pull up, you know, it was just, it was some shit, I just knew I was gonna get discovered or make that right connection right there, and that one night finally came, I remember the manager, um, well actually, I'm sorry, one of the owners of the restaurant, um, Brad Johnson, who was a huge black socialite in the upper echelon of like, of the whole world, he was, he was, um, one of Eddie Murphy's close friends, he was like one of Denzel's best friends, and he was his partner, he told me, he's like, hey, Ben, I got to go to Vegas, man. So no fucking hood shit tonight, all right? We be getting crazy in here, you know what I'm saying? We don't want no fights. We don't want anything. And I don't want you to fuck it up, okay? So don't fucking fuck around. You know, no bullshit. I'll be fucking, you know, I'll be watching you closely. So he jumped on a jet to go head, head to uh, Vegas to go watch a boxing match. And I'm like, motherfucker, you tripping, dog. I got the full run of the club. And I was like, fuck this. And there was like this gigantic, one big screen. There were screens everywhere. That we had. It was kind of like a sports bar, Jamaican restaurant. And like... I had the full run of the spot. 
So I was like, man, hold on. I, you know, I control all the screens from the DJ booth. So I, I put on all these black exploitation films. So on a couple screens, I had the Mac. On one screen, I had Shaft. On another screen, I had fucking uh, Kofi and shit. And like, you know, Dr. Dre gets there early. And I'm like, okay, it's going to be a motherfucking night. And um, it was crazy. He wasn't talking to no hoes. He, had, he, wasn't fucking, he was just vibing, right? And he was just literally sitting at the end of the bar, just straight vibing off of all the shit, all the rare grooves and all that funk shit I was playing. And um, he would check out the movie screen. He was watching that shit. I just saw him. It was just no fancy spot in L.A period, would ever play this type of movie on a TV screen along with the type of music. Like, I'm throwing Faso on there. You know, I'm throwing William Devon. I got Roy Ayers playing, like, just gangster shit. You know, I'm, like, gradually playing from, like, the 60s, like, the JBs and shit to the 70s to the 80s. And then, like, when I hit the 90s, I started to get gang-related. You know what I mean? I'm playing fucking current shit like Dove Shack, Warren G, Fushnickens, fucking uh, Craig Mack, Warren G., and it's funny because I'm playing like fucking um, Biggie Smalls and like Dre was a big fan of East Coast music. He just loved East Coast beats, East Coast music. He was a huge Diamond D and just like premier. He's, he's a big fan of these dudes. And people, he was so West Coast. This guy's like the West Coast leader and people didn't fucking know that shit, right? And so like I threw on a mean ass set and then I took a break. I put a mix CD on and I walked down to where Dre is sitting. Like, you know, I, I like sit about five seats away from him. And I knew he was going to fucking talk to me. And I told the bartender, I was like, it's my boy Arthur. It's this white boy. And I was like, hey, man, pour me a Long Island tea. And so Drake walks up. He, he looks over to me and he goes, hey, hey, youngster. Like, what you know about that music you was playing up there, man? And I was like, you know, he's, he's like, and hey, man, what the fuck? How, how you know I like uh, Long Island teas? And I'm like, I don't, man, bro, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, man. You know, I, was, I like a Long Island tea. This is my drink, you know? And I was like. I've been fucking with music since I was a little kid. You know, my brother would, uh, you know, play me a lot of fucking Barquets and, and Earth, Wind and & Fire and like James Brown shit and everything. And I just, I just been down music since I was a kid, you know? And he's like, yo, you make beats? And this was the first time documented that Dr. Dre asked me, do I make beats? And I was like, nah, man. And he's like, all right, you got some skills, man. You know, give me, give me, a, give me a number. So he took down my pager number. And like a week later, I'm with my boy Field. Field worked for Def Jam West and he worked for uh, my boy DJ Paul Stewart. Shout out to DJP. Um, DJP, Paul Stewart was vice president of Def Jam and he ran West Coast of Def Jam. He signed Montel Jordan. Literally, this is how we do it. If you listen to the song, this is how we do it. He says, he goes, I ran to a DJ and Paul was his name. I think he said DJP a few times in the song, whatever, but that was Paul Stewart, my boy, his white boy. Shout out to Paul Stewart. I don't know if you listen to it, but Paul's around somewhere. And um, Paul was ahead. Paul signed Warren G. Paul signed Coolio. Paul was managing Farside, and he was fucking killing it. My boy Field was his right-hand man. And I'm with Field, and we're driving down Sunset, and I get a fucking beep. And uh, these guys had cell phones, so I was like, hey, man, Field, can I use your phone? And, and um, I called the number, and the lady's like, yeah, how you doing? Uh, Can-Am Studios, how can I help you? And Field goes, hey, bro, that's Death World Records, homie. That's, that's Sam Sneed. And so Sam Sneed, he hits me up. He goes, hey, bro, you know, come down to the studio. You know, um, um, and bring some breaks, you know what I'm saying? Breaks were records, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, shit to, to sample off of. So I was like, I brought a gang of breaks from like, I brought a bunch of old Beatles records. I brought Boss Skaggs records, you know, Grover Washington and all kinds of shit. And Sam Sneed, who was Death Row star producer at the time, he began to start making some beats in the studio. And this was like my first time in like, Can-Am Studios in Reseda, right? And like, I don't even go this far deep in the valley. This was, it was never really my thing. And like, I was an LA cat. I didn't really fuck with the valley like that. 
And um, this was the first night I actually met the Dog Pound. I met like all these motherfuckers, Snoop, everybody. I was like, I was tripping because I fuck with these dudes so heavy. I'm, you know, I'm a West Coast G from like at, at heart. So this is also the, the, the first night I formally met Suge. And let me tell you something. Suge was fucking scary as fuck. This motherfucker, and I mean scary. I don't mean in a West Coast term. I mean Suge was scary. Like I was frightened like to hell. This, this dude was so, he was, he has the energy about him was so crazy. It, it was, it was nuts. And the folklore around that surrounded him was like uh, in the streets of LA. It was like worse than fucking Freddy Krueger. It was, it was just scary. And um, that night, Someone spilled iced tea, like literally literal iced tea onto the recording board. You know what I'm saying? It was an expensive ass knee board and fucking flying faders and everything. And so that was the first night, you know what I mean? Me and Suge and Suge beat some dude's ass like right there, whooped his ass, beat the shit out of him. And um, there was LAPD working as security. And I didn't even know that was like possible. Never heard of like LAPD being a security. It was, it was crazy. And like that became popular later, obviously. And like we'll get into later when, when Biggie got shot in LA and everything, but um. LAPD was scandalous then, you know, and, and um, it was just fucking such a weird thing because dudes were smoking weed, motherfuckers were in the studio getting high, getting their dick sucked, acting crazy as fuck. There were fucking pit bulls fighting in the studio. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? And this was when, if you had weed in LA, you had like, you had a 20 sack on, you're going to jail, bro. It's a fucking felony. Like, this was a different time in like life, period. And like, LAPD is working security so like you know they ain't worry about shit so like anyways i ended up going to that studio a lot and um i was able to get some placement on some records what people always ask me hey how you got them death row fucking plaques on the wall and everything and like i did some scratch inserts and you know um shots the old school crew over there man fuck um fucking uh krista glove taylor uh stooby doo stew fingers um who else, man, was up in there? Fuck, I'm trying to think, man. My brain is so fucking rattled now telling all these fucking crazy stories because this is fucking 20, you know, years ago, over 20 years ago. But um, I remember, um, you know, anytime I get a chance to talk to Dre, he's like, yo, man, I don't really watch you work, working over here. You know, this ain't really like a spot for you, you know? Like, I know, like, you know, um, you know, I got a spot. I got a dude you can meet and talk to and um, you can go work for this dude. And uh, later, obviously, you know, the outcome, I mean, most people know I end up working at Aftermath Entertainment. We'll get into that in a little bit, but we'll actually we'll get into that later. But uh, that guy he introduced me to was Brian Turner. And the crazy thing is I was one of the first, you know, if you know who Brian Turner is, if you watched that Straight Outta Compton movie, you know, that movie was kind of like, kind of bullshit. Um, not bullshit. There's just timelines that are a little off and whatever, because I, I was there throughout the whole thing and I know, but they had to make it a Hollywood movie. And um, I'm not trying to take away anything from F. Gary Gray. He's fucking super talented. And he was early, super early priority record uh, director. And, um, so Brian Turner was CEO, founder, and owner of Priority Records. And um, he really did sign the California Raisins. If anybody remembers back in the day, they went gold. Then they went and went fucking platinum, maybe. And Brian Turner was super smart, Jewish dude from Canada. And uh, he's the guy responsible for starting fucking, well, I mean, NWA and Eazy-E, my favorite group of all time, one of my favorite rappers of all time. And uh, that's where, you know, they got their start. And shit, Master P got his start there. You know, we signed Jay-Z there. And... um. Brian Turner was just a, he was a fucking genius and uh, he believed in me. He had a lot of faith in me and that was the first time I got like a, a really high paying job. I think I started out making $40,000 a year, but I started out as an A&R manager. So I wasn't at the bottom. I wasn't in the mail room, but I was like, you know, there was people above me and these motherfuckers let it be known. Like, you know, some Asian dude working in the fucking office, like, okay, we got to give this motherfucker some bullshit, you know? And um, to be completely honest, man, I think this is the part where I'm gonna cut it off. 
because there's too much good shit that's coming up right now. And it's just, it's like, there's going to be a part two, part three, and part four. And there's just too much to talk about. You know what I'm saying? And like, I want to continue later. And it's like, when I continue, we'll talk about like when we did the Rockefeller deal and like me becoming friends with, with Dame Dash and um, me being way more popular of a DJ, connecting with bigger networks and, um, you know, meeting and becoming friends with Leonardo DiCaprio at the time and like using like, I had clout at the time, you know, and then this was obviously, there's no social network, there's no motherfucking internet, nothing. And, um, you know, me and Leonardo DiCaprio was kicking it. It was cool, man. It was a dope era during that time. I was hanging out. Um, I got to live in, I was living in the same building as Tupac. Um, I had a fucking huge R&B group. Um, I was working with Faith Evans, working with Missy Elliott before she had a deal. And just like so much more shit, you know. I don't know if I could put these in sequence, you know, but I just want to call this the K-Town Hustler series. And the one we just did is the, the K-Town Hustler series one. But it'll all be told here exclusively on the Behind the Baller podcast. Hey, y'all. Tax day is right around the corner on April 15th. It is so important to file taxes on time and to have the best accountants having your back. If you want to have the best in your corner, then call Levy, pronounced Levy, and Associates. Established over 30 years ago, they are family-owned and third generation. You'll get hands-on experience with people who care and want to help. I would like to announce a special offer for the BTB Army. Call 1-800-TAX-LEVY, 800-829-5389, and mention Behind the Baller for a family discount. They offer any services that are related to taxes, such as if you have not filed, you owe money, you want to start a business, and more. They have CPAs, attorneys, former IRS officers, and accountants on staff. Just so you know, using an automated program online to do a tax return can lead to a possibility of losing out on tax benefits. Always, always go to a professional. Call 1-800-TAX-LEVY. That's 1-800-829-5389 and mention Behind the Baller or go to levytaxhelp.com today. That's L-E-V-Y taxhelp.com and go there today because you do not want to sleep on taxes. Tax day is coming, BTB Army. Guys, you know me, Mr. Positivity. To keep the new year positivity going, Audible has created a destination for complete well-being that delivers. Inspiration, encouragement, and actionable steps, no matter what your goals are, at audible.com slash well-being. Audible editors have curated a range of titles featuring experts in a wide range of self-care and self-development categories. From mastering your emotions and improving relationships to getting in shape and finding more success at work and at home. Among the listens are brand new titles from some of the most inspiring original voices in genre, including best-selling self-help expert Mel Robbins, who returns with a new podcast called Here's Exactly What to Do. Coach Pamela has created Mastering the Skill of Reinvention, which can help you turn the life you dream of into the life you live. Renowned music producer and performer Major, 
who offers major frequency, a revitalizing journey into the healing power of music. Listening opens up a world of opportunities for discovering insights wherever you are. And these titles can give you the confidence and motivation you need to build the life you deserve. Audible.com slash well-being. When running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap. An average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small businesses. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or even real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day. All of that just for $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees. You can cancel at any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash baller right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash baller. Spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash baller. The year is 1995. Working on the Friday soundtrack and uh, Brian Turner and Ice Cube. Um, it was Cube's first film that he had directed and, and put together himself and everything. Uh, Brian helped him make it. Think all in the can. The movie cost like $2.5 million. And this shit was just fucking enormous. I, I don't even know what the fuck. It might have hit $100 million, I don't know. But it was an extreme success. At a certain point, the soundtrack was doing so well that New Line Cinema stopped promoting the fucking movie anymore because like, the soundtrack was doing it. It, it, was, it was crazy. And the soundtrack was doing so good that it was in our best interest to keep pushing it. And so we pushed the movie as well and everything. It was just crazy. There are some stories on that. I just realized right in my back head right now, but then I know that there's so many fucking things I got to talk about that I'm not going to go into these backstories, but the backstories include fucking beef between Cypress Hill and Ice Cube. That was like enormous and people got fucking beat up and shit and there's all kinds of drama and Cypress Hill wanted to kill me. And as you know, I'm fucking affiliated and tight with Cypress Hill and Soul Assassins, the whole motherfucking Soul Assassins, all the way back to the fucking hooligans, motherfucking Funk Dubious, House of Pain, just all that shit. This is crazy. So anyways, um, my salary at Priority Records is $40,000 a year. I've never had full medical insurance coverage before in my entire life. And um, this shit is crazy, man. At the time when I was there, Ice Cube and Mac 10 were running it. Obviously, West Coast music. It was just a, it was just, that was the time. Um, there were two A&R guys that were ahead of me at the time. 
Uh, one was a guy named Casual T. He had signed Organized Confusion, and uh, that was fucking a big deal. I don't know if you know who fucking Feral Munch is, but um, you know that was a fucking you know, that song. Simon says is huge. Casual T was best friends with this dude named Money Money B, who's my boy from Digital Underground. Shout out to Digital Underground. Shout out to the Bay Area. Shout out to Oakland. And um, who do we else we have on the label at the time? We had Razkaz, who I was his A&R. We had the Bums. They were a small group out of the, out of the Bay. There was a ton of motherfuckers on the distributed label side with uh, Mark Ceramia, Dave Weiner, my boy Howie. Was it Howie? No, fucking Howard. Or, fuck, I forgot his fucking name, man. This is a long time ago. It's 24 fucking years ago. But uh, we had JT, the bigger figure, um, San Quinn. There were some other upcoming Bay Area artists. We might have had... Did we have a project with Sebo? I forgot, man, but we're, we're doing a lot of shit. All right. And I sort of fell off with Barry Music like probably a year after being in LA. It was just was, was just one thing. But one thing I want to say is JT, the bigger figure, was so fucking humble and he was moving records. Remember, he's just, just such a fucking cool dude, like nicest guy in the world. To this day, man, I saw JT not, not that long ago. Dude's always been smart. He's always figured things out. Remember one day he pulled up on me on a, with the fucking, he had a fucking gold president rolex it's like one of the first ones i've seen besides uh one of my mom's friends who had one and it was just just fucking super nice man just seeing a gold rolex president for the first time i don't only see so many on instagram just want seeing one for the first time especially if you came from nothing and you're broke shit was incredible he told me he bought it five thousand dollars off a of crackhead off of fillmore that's where he's from you know and um on the distributed label side there's just so much shit going on that wasn't anything that was that i was fucking with but uh just real underground rap, and it was making a lot of money. And right around that time is when Dave Weiner, who ran distributed labels under Mark Cerami, Mark Cerami is Brian Turner's partner. They had signed No Limit Records, and never in a fucking million years could you have told me No Limit was going to be this fucking big. And it changed. It changed Priority Records' legacy forever, like for real. Um, at this time, I was like hanging out with Leonardo DiCaprio because I was DJing at the clubs and shit. And like me and him would go get a fucking slice of pizza at fucking Sabaro at, at the Beverly Center. Um, like I said, I'd see him at the clubs and shit. One night he came up to me at Carlos and Charlie's, which is right across the street from Roxbury. And um, it was like a random night. So I think it was Saturday Night Fever, Brent Bolthouse night. And he came up to me and he was just like, bro, I just fucking finished filming a movie with Sharon Stone. And at the time, Sharon Stone was fucking huge. He's like, I just fucking made out with fucking Sharon Stone. We dry fucked. <laughs> I was like, I thought it was fucking really funny. And you know, the way that Leo dressed and, and you know, where he was from, he's super hipster area and shit. And like, I look at like all these young Hollywood people that are successful. They're so similar in so many ways. That's what the white ones I'm saying. Or like just the artsy people, the fucking super hipster ones. They just, the ones that really make it, they dress and act the same. It like reminds me of like Kai Gerber, Cindy Crawford's daughter, Kaya Gerber, and her, and her and her friend Charlotte Lawrence, who um like their crew, just every fucking generation doesn't matter. They all kind of dress the same. They'll wear dirty Chuck Taylors and shit and just everything. Like, anyways. I was always cool with Leo and um my boys are still his close homies. I just had like different things that I wanted to do and um with my life. I couldn't be in anyone's entourage, you know. There's just there was no long-term check in being in that. But in fact, in his entourage, he's just somehow made, I think a couple of dudes really 
they kind of live okay. But then there's some dudes in, in Leo's crew that are definitely motherfucking eaten. And there's so much that he does fucking philanthropy-wise and everything else. But anyways, fuck all that shit. I thought I want to throw that in there because people in fucking not living, who don't live in New York or LA or fucking Paris or London, they just love hearing about celebrities anyways. So back at my job at Priority, I was super lost. Like it was a new thing, corporation. I'm a DJ from the street and like Master P was crushing shit. Fucking Silk the Shocker was in there. By the way, shout out to Silk the Shocker, man. He still hits me up once in a while in DMs, man. That's my guy. I haven't seen P in a, I haven't seen Percy Miller, AKA Master P in a long time. Like two or three times I was on a fucking, on a train, like a train from the airport that takes you to baggage claim with Romeo, little Rome or Romeo, Romeo, I don't know what, Romeo Miller, Master P's son. And he had like security and, and I'm sure now I bet a million dollars he knows who I am, but I want to be like, bro, I'll work with your dad, you know, but that's just not my style. I don't go up to people and just make small talk. But uh, one thing was it felt so good to have a fucking business card. You know, my shit said Ben Yang Baller, A&R, had an office. It was official. It was like a major label. It wasn't the biggest label, but it was like fucking dope. You know, I know it wasn't Def Jam. It wasn't Universal or Sony, one of these gigantics, but it was, it just was fucking crazy, you know? And prior to that, every winter in Miami, there was this music convention, like music seminar by Peter Thomas. Peter Thomas is, uh, people hear about him on, uh, was it Love and Hip Hop? No, I think he's on Real Housewives of Atlanta. He's married to someone. Somehow he's tied into it. But this, uh, this music conference was called How Can I Be Down? And in 1995 to like 1997, there was no festivals. You know what I'm saying? This was before any of that shit existed. And you gotta remember, hip hop is not, it's popular, but it's nowhere near what the fuck it is today. It's not dominating the fucking airwaves. There was like one dedicated station in like maybe like, I don't know how many cities. R&B is definitely much more, but it's just, this shit was fucking nuts. Being in Miami at this time, it's my first time in, in South Beach and I fucking just fell in love with it. Um, Prince, yes, you know what the singer, Prince, he owned a huge nightclub in LA and in Miami called Glam Slam. And this place was just fucking dope. And um, this convention, this, this music seminar, every single fucking music label was there, all right? Every single fucking major person in the rap game was there. From Fat Joe to Wu-Tang to fucking Puff Daddy to Tribe Called Quest and like, to be real, nobody really gave a fuck about West Coast music at the West Coast artists. It was, it was weird, you know? I mean, they fuck with Dre, but they just didn't fuck with a lot of other people. It was like, they, they like low key, no, actually they high key hated on us. Anyways, I stay at this small, dope-ass fucking boutique hotel. It wasn't like anything crazy, but it was, it was like, it was a four-star. I don't think it was a five-star, but it was, it was just super dope, and it was, it was a boutique hotel. And um, I fuck with boutique hotels sometimes, but at that time, I was obviously on a budget with the company's money, whatever else. But uh, this place was called Hotel Impala, and it was on Collins. And like, again, this was my first time in Miami Beach. It was Art Deco District, and I was just hooked. In fact, I even dated a chick who um, lived and was from Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I started coming to Miami like every other month. I was going to Miami like six times a year. Not even for the girl, just because I fucking fuck with it. And at this music conference, um, they would showcase at the local clubs. There was, you know, at this one hotel that occupied the, the event where they had the seminars and stuff. And um, I had to bring this up because this shit fucking, I'll never forget it. There was this Chinese Jamaican DJ. Yes, 
You heard me. He was the most famous fucking DJ. He was the biggest reggae DJ and dancehall DJ in the fucking world at the time. And he was Chinese, by Chinese color, but he's Jamaican. I didn't hear, get to hear this dude talk, but his, and fuck, I'm going to fucking check out and see if there's anything on YouTube of him. But his name was DJ King Waggy T. And this dude was unfucking real His dance hall reggae swag was in, just insane. He had reggae mixes on lockdown. And he was one of the resident DJs at the world famous Cameo, right? So I was in Miami for a week. So I was hanging out with some locals and I was soaking it all in. I didn't want to go to like, you know, just the, the shit that everyone hits and stuff. And um, I, I mean, it's not like South Beach now, but I mean, it was a long time ago. Newsroom Cafe was around. Versace was still alive, you know. Um, the Versace Mansion, they, the parties there. The motherfucking Gianni Versace was alive. And uh, back then I went to the world famous Rolex Club. I don't know if you know that strip club. It's fucking legendary as a motherfucker. This is decades before Tootsie's existed and decades before Eleven existed. And um, Uncle Luke, you know, from Two Live Crew, he ran South Beach. He ran Miami for a long time. In fact, I'm sure he still is like an underboss of Miami. But I just, again, man, I fell in love with the whole fucking area from Boca Raton to Ball Harbor to fucking Coconut Grove. I was just like, I was, I was about to get a Dade County tattoo. You know, I was just a big fan of the 305, Star Island, all that shit. So anyways, um, Going back to King Waggy T, let me tell you something why he was fucking amazing too. When I DJed at the height of my career, I kind of figured out what I was going to play. I wasn't trying to sit there and take requests and anything else. But like when I was DJing and I was like getting it in, I'd bring like four or five crates, you know, and you have to have somebody help you with a car or something, no matter how bootleg your car was. You need to come with at least four or five crates. You had a gang of shit you could dig in, right? This dude, King Waggy T, would pull up to Cameo with 15, 20 crates shit I've never seen before my entire life. He had fucking crates for 45s. If you don't know what 45s are, then too fucking bad and you just don't know shit about music and I don't give a fuck how many fucking records you fucking sold. If you listen to this shit, you don't know what a fucking 45 is, then go do some fucking homework. So let's go back to priority. A lot happened in a short time and I'm trying to get it out here as, as you know, on this podcast. And uh, I got promoted to A&R director real fast. A&R director is, is, a, is a pretty big title and uh, a lot of people are hurt and, you know, let me say this, in every fucking year of my life, I have somehow hurt somebody's feelings by not doing anything but climbing a ladder, right? And I heard a lot of people inside the company, inside the office, people talking shit, you know, in front of my face, behind my back and everything. And, you know, I remember my office being upgraded and um, I actually started out having an office, which is crazy, right? I had a couch and everything, but like, Every time I upgraded my position, I get like a bigger office. I'd get, you know, doper furniture. I'd have a TV. I'd have a doper stereo system. And, you know, I'd have a window. And it just was crazy, you know. And, and um, nobody wanted to see me succeed. You know, some people were cool. But I was young, super young at the time. That's, you know. And uh, I was real cocky, you know. I know for today, 22 is not really that young. 23 is not really young. But... I was very young for my profession at the time, especially there. It wasn't very common. And so at the same time, I hadn't signed anyone yet. I haven't, no one's been signed yet. You know, I'm just doing a lot of A&R, but I was putting out compilations. I was doing a lot of sequencing. I was giving a lot of advice, things I thought from a street opinion, um, but I haven't signed anyone. Red Foo, you know what Red Foo is? It's from, uh, yes, LMFAO, you know, Party Rock Anthem, 
Red Fu. Red Fu, who his dad is enormous music fucking mogul, and I won't tell you who he is. You guys should go look it up because I'm trying to teach you guys something here, man. Red Fu actually entered my office during the first week of me being an A&R director. And uh, an old friend I grew up with, this guy named Gavin O'Connor, who was a dope DJ, worked at a independent label. He's just, I don't know where Gavin is now, man. Gavin was always around. He's just a, just a solid dude. Um, he used to rap. He did all kinds of shit. Dude was just a, just a dope dude. He shopped his demo with me. Um, Red Foo has been rapping for a very long time, been in music a long time. And uh, Red Foo and Dre Croon. I have not heard from Dre Croon in a long time. But a lot of cats came into my office with demos and nobody was really worthy enough for me to put my neck on the line for, you know what I'm saying? Like prior to me being, you know, the A&R, I had replaced somebody that was A&R director. You know, I, I took his job. Um, I didn't take his job. You know, I, I'm really trying to be humble here. And um, that guy had signed a couple groups and they didn't really hit. And meaning they, they, they didn't sell, they didn't do well. And, um, you know, so groups got dropped. A couple dudes, you know, they're still there. Um, but one thing about this dude is he passed up on a couple people who end up being kind of big. One of them was this girl named Adina Howard. And she had a song called Freak Like Me. And, and if you were growing up in the 90s, this, girl had, this was a huge song. But to his defense, our label was a rap powerhouse. It was a rap house. It wasn't an R&B house. So it wasn't until later in the game that everything, you know, again, just hit super fast and super hard. Um, I met up with one of my boys, Tony Smith. And at the time he was named, his name was T Smooth, right? And uh, he was a first round NFL draft pick. He's fucking super baller, right? His name is uh, Mr. De Niro on Instagram. And um, this dude taught me how to ball. Like this dude really actually taught me how to ball. Like he was my dad when it came to balling. This dude just, this guy had fucking Bentleys, big body Benzes with the ground effect kit. He had a, a Benz 500 with the fucking full Lorenzo kit. Back when all the shit actually mattered. Like when motherfuckers just was not, you didn't, you had to really have it for you to be out there like this. You know, or you had to be famous. You had to be fucking Martin Lawrence or, you know, Denzel or playing in, in the league. And that's what he did. You know, he always had a fly ass girl with the models, actresses, um, he was engaged allegedly at the, I'm not sure I'm almost positive he was engaged to Jada Pinkett but he dated Jada for a very long time they're together for a while um, he just literally dated the baddest women so anyways this dude came to my office and uh, well actually I met I met up with him I was at a club and he told me he had some shit to, to play me and I just trusted dude because and this is before me and him even had a relationship I just trusted dude um he told me he was doing music, he was making beats, and he was fucking with people. And I knew the dude was super connected. So he comes to my office a few days after I meet him with an R&B group, all right? And he says the R&B group, you know, kind of affiliated with Def Squad. Anybody who's in hip-hop knows Def Squad. Is, was, this was a major, you know, now you're like, oh, there's Aftermath, there's TDE, there's this and that. Well, okay, well, Def Squad was one of the biggest respected hip-hop cliques in hip hop, and that was Eric Sherman, Redman, and Keith Murray. So he walks into my office with Faith Evans. Yes, Biggie Small's wife, right? The whole office was chit chattering. It went around in a fucking circle. We had the entire floor, right? And the whole office was like, oh shit, that's fucking, you know, Faith Evans. She signed a bad boy. What the fuck is she doing here, right? That's Biggie's wife. You know, I just kept hearing the shit all fucking day long. In fact, San Quinn, 
he came to my office, was like, oh shit, man, I want to meet Faith. And he said hi to her and everything else. And so I, I, this, this is, I'm going to say something that just sounds crazy. I will say this until I die. The demo that he played me was fucking incredible. It was really good. Faith was singing on some of the reference tracks. She also vocal coached the, gr the group. It was a three-girl group, and the group was called The Truth, The T-H-A. And I, I told them, you know, right then and there, I was like, oh, man, this shit's cool. You know, I was playing my little, had like this little poker face, you know, but I almost played it too cool. He was shopping the demo around, and, and I really wanted to fuck with this group. And um, he thought I didn't like it. And even Faith had told me, that's what he told me. He said, Faith was like, what the fuck's wrong with this dude's ears? And, you know, I guess, you know, oh, Ben Ball is a new A, you know, I don't know. So as soon as he left the office, I went right to Brian's office, Brian Turner. And I was like, man, listen to this fucking demo. This shit's incredible. Look who's involved in the project. This is crazy. And then next thing you know, boom, Brian's like, fucking, we got to do this. And so I had my first signing. I was fucking excited as fuck. This was the first group I signed. I told everyone in the fucking office, people who didn't want to hear the shit, I played it for them anyway. Um, I told people I'm going to have a hit record and all this kind of shit. So we started getting ready to get this deal in order. And meanwhile, the girls were going on tour with Faith as their backup singers and uh, to get some training, you know, as, as, you know, being an artist and shit. And like, um, that was a fucking whole mess. Jesus Christ. I remember my boy told me he was uh, working with Heavy D and he was working with the group Soul For Real. I'm sure you remember Soul For Real. They had fucking smash hits. And he was like, bro, you about to deal with three black women. And I'm like, so fucking what, man? I've dated black women. I'm tripping. He goes, nah, bro, you're not, you're not understanding me. You're dealing with three weaves, wigs, three periods, a month, and this and that. And I was like, fuck. But um, <laughs> it was what it was. And I love those girls, man. It's it crazy. So um, just a few months later, we brought in this deal with a rapper from Brooklyn, and he was signed to a, a label called Freeze Records. And his name was Jay-Z. Yes, motherfucker. I'm talking about Jigga. Hove. Jay-Z. And the deal was a distribution deal. So obviously went through, uh, but it was so fucking big of this, that we were doing this. Um, basically with the deal, we were going to market the record as well. So we're doing marketing promotion for this record. And he already had a first single that was ready to go out. And it was called Dead Presidents. And on the B side, he had Ain't No N-Word. And um, Dead Presidents was dope. You know, he sampled the fucking Nas. I'm I'm for presidents to represent me. And um and went out to radio and it was doing well. But ain't no N-word with Foxy Brown on the B side was killing it in the clubs. It was starting to bubble real heavy, underground, all across. It was just blowing up way bigger than Dead Presidents was. And Foxy Brown was a huge star at the time. She signed to Def Jam, she was killing it. And um I would know, man. I was DJing every fucking party in LA and Hollywood, all the big parties. And back then, if you had a rap song that's being played in like a major Hollywood venue, then it had to be a smash hit. And that song, I mean, Rock, Foxy Brown songs were being played. So anyways, I'm working on the Truths album and T-Smooth tells me that, you know, he's going to be in the studio with, uh, with Tupac. And I'm like, Pac? Tupac? And I was like, wait a second, he got out of jail? He goes, yeah, he, he's out. And I'm like, shit, bro, I, I, want, I want to meet him. You know, like, like I, want, I would love to meet the guy, you know what I'm saying? I'm a different dude at this time. I'm green, feet fucking not wet at all. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm like, wow, you know? And um, last time I seen him, I had mentioned in, in you know, K-Town Hustle number one that I uh, was at Jada Binkett's birthday party. You know, I, I DJ Jada's party at Creek Alley. And it was like over a year ago and he went to jail for these rape allegations or whatever and it was fucked up. So anyways, T-Smooth was in the studio with him. 
And um, T's, you know, build a relationship with dude. And T-Smooth's connected with fucking everyone. He's just, he's just a fly dude and people knew him. And people always co-sign him really heavy too. So we decided to, um, we finally decided to celebrate the Truth signing. And uh, their album is almost done. T-Smooth, you know, he got his own little studio. Um, he did most of his record already in that studio. So we hit this place called Monty Steakhouse. Now, Monty's, this is like way before Mastro's or anything. Like this was the fucking most lit steakhouse in all of LA. In fact, this is more, this, if this place was open, I would fucking go there 10 times before I went to Mastro's or Cut or any Wolfgang Puck or anything dope. Besides LA Prime, we'll get into that later. It's one of my favorite steakhouses. Um, it was in a high-rise office building in Westwood. And you just didn't go there unless, you know, you had money. It was a different type of thing. Like, you know, motherfuckers now can go, even me, I'm guilty of it. I'll walk into a nice-ass restaurant with sweats on and my wife hates that shit. But you don't go to this place, they fucking wouldn't serve you. It wouldn't sit you down, nothing. It was a different time. When Snoop got acquitted of his murder charges, he rented out the entire restaurant and spent $50,000 there, okay? Now, understand, $50,000 back then on dinner and drinks... That's equivalent to dropping two, three hundred thousand dollars now. Dropping a quarter million dollars in a restaurant now, it's like fucking nuts. The restaurant ran out of Dom P and they had fucking tons of fucking Dom Pre on and everything. So, anyways, we're celebrating. We rented a limo out on the company card. And uh, you know, to be honest, I, I didn't live no baller lifestyle back then. You know, I wasn't, you know, I had a fucking Nissan Maxima. And the back of the trunk had two holes in it because there used to be a spoiler on it. And um, I didn't have any money to fucking get like the, it was too expensive to fucking put, uh, to get the trunk like filled up with the holes and everything, whatever. So at this time, I'm barely making, I'm making like $75,000 a year and I'm spending about $100,000 a year. So I'm negative 25,000, right? I was upside down every single month trying to perpetrate like I was doing better than I actually was. It was stupid, you know? So I'm talking to Faith and, you know, we're in the limo driving and I'm like, oh shit, Faith Evans is fucking hood. Like, she like fucking real New Jersey hood as fuck. You know what I'm saying? And um, we start talking all kinds of shit. And I was thinking, you know, she's gonna be super bougie, but she's cool as fuck. You know, we get to the restaurant and we order a gang of food. And by the time we get to the restaurant, everyone is fucking drunk at the table. Now, mind you, remember in the limos, you know, they had like decanters and stuff. So you could drink alcohol in the limo. There's, there's a partition and everything. So you could drink and get fucked up. We had alcohol and everything. And Faith Evans is like, grab my mashed potato. And she's like, oh no, let me hook you up. And she put a fucking full stick of butter in my mashed potatoes. And I was like, oh, what the fuck is you doing? <laughs> like, And I said, fuck it. And I ate it. And the shit was delicious. So after dinner... You know, we, we motherfuckers had steaks and lobsters and fucking crab legs and shit. We went all out at Monty's. We hit the Century Club and we hung out there for a little bit. Century Club was another legendary nightclub in Los Angeles. Dr. Dre shouted out on next episode. People just know this club was the Lakers hung out there and they were super notorious for the dress code. If you didn't fucking have dress shoes on, you know, nice pants and just, a, just you had to be dressed and it just, I had a whole Versace outfit on, right? So, you know, um, it was a Sunday night. Sunday night was a black night there. So all the black celebrities were there. And of course, you know, I knew the DJ and shit was just popping off. It was a dope ass night. And people were calling, you know, they're shouting out Faith on the microphone. Faith was getting crazy looks. Dudes are trying to pull the, you know, shoot they shot with her and everything. And um, it was just a crazy ass celebration. It was a dope ass night. I need to cut to um, another story now. This is 
the infamous fucking story. And this is just fucking crazy. Um, I will never forget another night. I met T Smooth at Hollywood Athletic Club. Now, this was a billiard spot, right? Hollywood Athletic Club was a billiard spot that served food. They had like light food and they had like a bar, all right? It was diagonally across the street from my office from Priority and it was right in the heart of like the, the starting of the Sunset Strip. Well, Sunset Hollywood, Hollywood, right? It's uh, like a block, half a block from fucking where Warwick is. Literally half a block from Warwick, right? And this spot would pop off heavy. You know, they played music and shit. And it was just crazy. And, you know, you could catch any celebrity there and everything. It was just a popping spot. And on this night, I was there at T-Smooth, Eric Sermon, you know, legendary. And um, he was a fucking god in hip-hop. And Redman was there with us. And Faith was with us. And so was my group, The Truth. So the night was popping. I remember talking um, uh, to fucking uh, Redman and them. I was like, yo, I want to fucking, you know, be a DJ. Let me know. You know what I'm saying? I don't really DJ to shit like that and and I don't really get a lot of hip hop gigs I'm doing a lot of Hollywood bougie spots and so that was the night that Faith and Jamie Jamie's from my group The Truth took off to meet Tupac at Can-Am Studios and then later that night is when you know the infamous that's why I fucked your bitch and when, you know Tupac said that shit that, that's when it came about Faith I think sang on that records I wonder why they call you bitch and uh, Diddy didn't clear it for obvious fucking reasons. He wouldn't clear it. There's a fucking enormous war going on between Death Row and Bad Boy. And um, after the studio, to my knowledge, man, the story is real. I would, I would never even think, but you know, that was when Faith went back to the Peninsula Hotel to go um, smash pop. And uh, anyways, it's crazy. Back to my group, The Truth. Um, this was the first time me dealing with any kind of R&B shit. I loved R&B, obviously. You know, grew up listening to R&B. Key Swell's one of my favorites, you know, Troop and all that shit. And uh, Joe Desi, Jesus Christ, Joe Desi's guy and uh, all that shit. And this is different because I'm working with R&B now, R&B hip hop, but not like, this is fucking so many fucking years before Drake was like, it's acceptable to sing and rap. We had no radio promo team at Priority that was prepared to promote R&B. No one was going to R&B. Like sometimes it's like Cube had a gigantic hit. If you have a hit that's so big, it would cross over to the R&B hit and then it would cross over to pop, right? And uh, even though we had Eric Sermon, Keith Murray, Redman on the album, it was like a mountain climbing expedition. It was like rock climbing. It was just impossible just to get someone to fucking play the record. It, it was, you don't, it doesn't matter if the record was dope. It was all politics and it was just fucking difficult. Anyone who heard the Truth Records they love the songs. But again, we had a rap promo team. And until late, like super late in the game, a guy by the name of Mark Benish came on board. Um, Mark Benish was the head of promo promotion at Interscope. And he was a fucking boss. Uh, rest in peace to Mark. Mark passed away a long time ago. And um, Mark was the guy who was promoting Tupac's albums. Uh, shit, no doubt. I think maybe fucking Nine Inch Nails. But he promoted a lot of shit. He was the head of promotion. This guy's enormous. It's an enormous record label, Interscope. And uh, he got really close with Tupac. And he had a bunch of framed letters of Tupac. Tupac wrote him all the time from jail. And at this point, you know, we're on our last leg with the truth. You know, we did some tours and shit. And we're still barely, barely getting enough play to do shows. And we're just out there doing radio promo and everything. And um, anywhere that we hit, though, we killed it. You know, any place that they gave us a chance of playing our record and everything else, we were fucking smashing it. 
And this is when I really got to travel and see all 50 states and see how fucking crazy and how racist the USA was. And I'll never forget doing a radio show in Jacksonville. This was uh, 1996. It was a radio show. And Jay-Z was also on the, on the, the bill. And he was staying at a two-star hotel. I bullshit you not. This was a trap house hotel. This was the fucking, he was complaining about it. And that was the best thing that the, the radio station could play, pay for. The nicest hotel they had at the, in Jacksonville was a place called Omni. Um, I used the company credit card and was staying there. The radio was paying for Jay-Z there. Jay didn't know at the time. This was his first time out there in Jacksonville too. And it was the best the station could provide. And I remember Jay wouldn't stop talking shit about it. He was fucking pissed. Like, you know, um, he, he was just complaining. He was like, man, what the fuck? This is some bullshit. And Jay was already, you know, slang. And he was, he was like a little street legend and everything. Well, a little, I'm sorry. He was a legend, period. And at this time, let me mention, Jay-Z would walk around, you know, in Jordan 11 IE lows. If you guys know, Sneero Sneakerheads know what Jordan 11 IE is. And um, he's wearing the lows with like jean shorts. And he was rocking like a JT Bigger the Figure t-shirt. Jay-Z was rocking a JT the Bigger Figure t-shirt on, okay? And he had on a do-rag, right? But Jay was still fly, you know? Um, Jay-Z is the reason why I ended up copping a GS300. And at this time, this car was the shit. This was like the one of the dopest fucking cars, you know, at the time. Lexus was super fucking just, they were like, Lexus was a super high-end brand. They were new. People loved Lexus. They didn't have a lot of models. And it meant a lot more back then, obviously. And um, he had the touring edition. I had a regular joint. But um, it was a big deal. You know, this car was designed by the great Ferrari designer, Pininfarina. It was a, it was a fucking super fresh-ass car. It was like a... That shit gave me so much clout having that car. It was crazy. So um, things started getting tougher and tougher at Priority. And people didn't like me. They didn't want to work with me, even though I had a good project. Sometimes Brian would have to get involved, and I hate using him because people would be like, oh, it's that nepotism shit. And even when he got involved, people wouldn't give a fuck. They'd rather get fired, and that's just my life story. You know, um, if you want to win, you should just fucking win, whether you can't get along. And I get it. You know, I've toned it down 700,000%. So if you could imagine how fucking cocky I was back then, Jesus Christ. And, and I have shit to fucking show for it. I was just a, I've always been that guy. So when people say, oh man, you should be more humble. They don't know the fuck they're talking about. So um, while, you know, my group is struggling, Master P is getting stronger and stronger. And um, I had to figure out what we're going to do. And I, I was like, yeah, I, I got to fucking sign a rapper. Cause that's just what, you know, I'm like, I'm fucking focused on this R&B group. And at the time, we had spent about almost $1 million, which is unheard of. Like Destiny's Child, when they fucking came out, didn't spend a million dollars in that fucking album probably the first time. Like, especially for an independent label, you know? And it's also to make things more complicated, I got promoted to Vice President A&R, which because of, you know, a lot of other things that I was doing as far as like administrative shit. And um, right soon after T-Smooth, my fucking, you know, the, the manager, executive producer and everything of, you know, um, the truth, he gets offered an executive vice president job. So I bring him in to get a production deal, you know, get him signed. And this motherfucker becomes my boss sort of, you know, but, um, it was cool. He had my back and, uh, I think Brian felt like it was maybe cheaper to fucking use him as a write-off, but Tony definitely had a lot of skills. You know, the only thing was, was I couldn't just sign anyone, you know, now that I, that I got this promotion, I had to get somebody huge, you know, and um, Master P was 
becoming enormous. He was on the verge right there becoming an enormous superstar. On the underground level, he was a god, right? Bout it, bout it was charting. I remember walking to the office and people were like, oh, Yo, you bout it, bout it? What the fuck you talking about? And then you're looking at, you know, you're um, listening to BET and shit and uh, bout it, bout it's playing and like people are going crazy. Like, you know, the song was so catchy. And um, it was crazy because this was the first time in Masterpiece career that he was charting on the Billboard charts, you know? And um, we had this group called West Side Connection, Mac 10, Ice Cube, Dub C. Um, they were also taking over the rap charts. So, you know, I felt stuck. And uh, I just got promoted to a six-figure job with an expense account, a fucking cell phone. You know, remember, having a cell phone back then was like fucking crazy luxury. Like, cell phone back then would be like $500, $600 a month, which is just ridiculous. People's cell phone bills aren't that now even, okay, because this is analog. So with all this, I feel like I'm not valuable to the label. And um, deep inside, I'm acting off like as if I'm the man, but really I'm just, I'm good at what I do. And I'm like scared to put my cards on the table. And like, I'm making stupid moves as well. Like I fucking turned down a Jay-Z verse, which I thought about this because it ain't like he's done a lot of fucking features, right? I turned down a fucking Jay-Z verse like a Jay-Z 16 bar verse, which later I regretted because to be truthful, and I'd say this to fucking Damon Dash and I say this to Biggs, um, I didn't think Jay-Z was gonna be a big deal. I didn't think he was gonna be a very big rapper. I didn't think he was gonna be huge. And I wasn't the only one who felt that way. So I tried one last thing to try to get this truth record popping. Um, my old boss over at Creek Alley, Brad Johnson, he was producing a movie at the time called Gang Related. And of course, you know, Gang Related, that was a movie that starring Tupac and, and Jim Belushi. And at the time, I lived at this place called the Broadcast Center. And uh, the Broadcast Center was at the time on top of a health food spot. Wasn't famous then, you know, but now it's super fucking famous because Kanye people talk about it. Every time I hear someone talk about it, I'm just like, oh my God, man, shut the fuck up. I've been fucking eating there for like 20 something years. But the place is called Erewhon. And um, it's right there on Beverly and Stanley and uh, on the corner of Beverly and Stanley, obviously right next to the Grove. But everyone talks about that shit now. Just, I just roll my fucking eyes. So yeah, this was before the Grove was even, had even started construction, right? And um, just by random chance, one of the dudes from Bone Thugs and Harmony lived in my building, but he got evicted because he was fucking acting crazy. And Tupac lived in my building for a short time while I was there. He ended up you know, moving, but I was there. And... Um, Pac, even if you Google Pac's driver's license, be like Tupac, Shakur, driver's license, I'm pretty sure you'll find his 7660 Beverly Boulevard, and that's where he lived. Um, a lot of dancers, choreographers lived there, actors, people who were trying to make it, people who had some success. I mean, it was, it was a nice place, I won't lie, you know. I also lived in Park La Brea, which was like almost across the street. And um, Sally Richardson, she was a famous black actress, she lived there. I'd see Russell Simmons used to creep outside the building all the time. Um, there's a lot of models, like I said, live in the building. So he would be out there, but back to Tupac, I felt like, you know, after me and Pac a few times, he like took a liking to me cause he was always so fucking cool, you know? And, and, uh, people would always say he was a dick, whatever, but he was so fucking cool. Uh, he was also dating. I don't know if he was married, but I, th I think he might've been married too, but he was dating my old friend, Kadada, Kadada Jones. And I known her forever. And, um, she went to Fairfax high school with me, uh, she was super close. Her sister, Rashida Jones, obviously a very famous actress. Remember, this is Quincy Jones' fucking daughter, bro. All right. <laughs> Sorry to say, bro, but um, 
she was uh, really close to my second cousin. Um, you know, it's crazy, right? Second cousin, but my second cousin was very close with the Quincy Jones family. Anyways, back in the day, there was two nightclubs inside the Beverly Center. And I guarantee people who've worked there for 10 years, my fucking cousins, anyone, they didn't even fucking know that. I guarantee they didn't know that, that there was nightclubs inside the Beverly Center. I'm talking about real motherfucking nightclubs. One was like hidden. You know, you couldn't just walk up to it. It didn't even have like a secret entrance and like a hidden door and shit and everything. And the other one was a place called Temple. And it's like right where like the Macy's Men's Store, behind the Macy's Men's Store, there's kind of another separate entrance to the Beverly Center from, from Beverly Boulevard, if you're going west to east. And um, the downstore is Macy's Men's Store. And like Beverly Center is like four minutes away from the broadcast center where I live and where Tupac lived. And like, I just happened to be outside one night on a Thursday night, it was popping and the promoter was being a bitch. He didn't want to let me in. He was just having me waiting in line. And so like, um, I see a SUV pull up and I see a Benz pull up and Pac gets out. And I don't usually say that, but I was like, yo, Pac, what's good, man? Yo, Pac, what's up? And you know, he saw me and he said, he said, what's, what's up, bro? And I was like, hey man, can you get me in? And he's like, come on, man, come on, man. Just, you know, you good, you know? And to this day, this is one of the only times I've ever seen a man a celebrity is starting to fuck who it is, bring in 10 other guys into a nightclub, like a popping nightclub. You better bring in girls, you know what I'm saying? You, or you spend a lot of money, you know, like, you know, if you're deep with guys at a club, you gotta be dropping 50K on a table or something now, you know, it's just not gonna happen. Um, anyways, he tells the security guard and the promoter, he's like, hey man, Ben is with me. And I was like, I just felt so fucking like, I felt so connected, man. It was like a proud moment in my life. You know, it's funny. He had my back or something. And he walks in and he's like, yo, I want your finest bottle of champagne immediately. And um, the few times that I've got to kick it with Pac was special. You know, it was probably the only time you ever saw me quiet too. You know, it was like, you know, maybe small talk. I never got into any deep conversations with Pac, but it was just dope to be in his presence, you know. So anyways, going back, I hit up Brad Johnson because I'm like desperate. I hit him up for a favor. I was like, hey, bro, I need a huge favor from you. There's an enormous beef between the East Coast and West Coast. And I'm hoping you know this. Brad is an older dude. Um, he knows hip hop and shit, you know what I'm saying? But he's he's an older cat. And he says, yeah, come on, man. Of course I know there's, you know, there's you know beef between Death Row and, and, and Bad Boy and shit. And um, Brad was really close. Like one of his best friends, this guy named John McClain. John McClain is a guy who signed Janet Jackson to her music career. Some of you young people have no idea how fucking enormous Janet Jackson was. But just because Michael Jackson was big, doesn't, Janet was fucking enormous. Huge fucking star. And on the same time, John McClain, he brought the Death Row deal to Interscope. You know what I'm saying? This guy was fucking major. He was one of the few guys probably in the music business that had a seven fucking figure record label and had points on albums and like, this dude was huge and Brad was connected with them. So, you know, I tell Brad, I'm like, hey man, I got a girls group called The Truth and their vocal coach and one of the writers and one of the featured singers on, on their album is Faith Evans. And you know who Faith is, obviously. And I was like, I got a remix now with Faith on it. And Puffy signed off on the clearance. You know, when you have a rapper, you got to have clearances, you know, especially if you're, you got one rapper on Def Jam, you got another rapper on fucking, uh, on Atlantic or something. You got to get a clearance. You can't just have a fucking artist. They got to have its legal shit. So I said, listen, man, Brad, I want to get Tupac as another feature on the record. You know, Faith is singing on this song. I need fucking Pac to rap on this song. This will be fucking huge. 
So Brad goes, oh, shit, that sounds crazy, Ben. Yeah, man, of course. I want to help you out. Let's, let's do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't worry about it. I got you. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up a, a meeting for you. So you and Pac can talk about it, and I'm sure he'll do it, and I'll, I'll even, you know, convince him and everything. Don't worry about it. I got you, Ben. Don't worry about it. So I get a call from Brad Johnson's assistant, and uh, she says, hey, we're going to do the, the meeting with you and Tupac on Friday, September 13th. And I'll never forget, the meeting was supposed to be in Santa Monica, and... Um, I had an artist named Gonzo at the time. I had a demo deal with him and he was part of one of Ice Cube's groups. Uh, it was called Caution. And they had a couple hit records and um, he was really close with Pac. So I was like, I wanted to fly to, to Vegas for the for the Tyson fight. And uh, Gonzo was like, yo man, let's go, man. Pac's my bro. So uh, sidebar, I remember being on a flight in Sydney Economy and this is way after the smoking ban um, had already happened, right? And yes, I'm, I'm that fucking goddamn old where I remember when you could actually smoke a fucking cigarette on a plane. So, you know, I kind of doze off, took a little nap, and I wake up. I'm in the back in the economy, Tupac's in first class, and I remember waking up and smelling smoke, like cigarette smoke, and I'm like, oh, shit. I knew immediately I was in this fucking Pac, man. And I thought it was just so hilarious because he was yelling and cussing out the stewardesses, and I'm surprised they didn't fucking arrest his ass. And um, it was just wild. So anyways, I'll never forget, I'm watching the fight, and uh, remember, there's no social media, there's no internet, there's just phones and pagers, and a lot of people don't have fucking have cell phones. I get a call that night that Pac was shot, and I'm like, oh shit, are you sure? There was this fucking club that Death Row had, I think it's called 662, I forgot what the fuck, it was in the movie, right? And um, it was, it should go in the club, so I guess they're heading their way there. And um, the next morning, my boss, Brian Turner, you know, he was really close with Suge, and, you know, he'd heard some things. He's like, hey, man, try to find out if you can hear anything about this. And, and uh, if you can find anything out, let me know. But, you know, information was just scarce. It wasn't, it wasn't around. And I remember uh, I was talking to T Smooth, and it was super late in Tokyo. And he was on tour with Def Squad, Keith Murray, Redman, Eric Sermon, the whole crew. And um, I told him, I was like, hey, man, tell everyone, man, that Tupac got shot. And they didn't even know yet. And been a day later. And, like, remember... You hear about somebody getting shot now, and in five minutes, the entire fucking earth knows. You could be in Bangladesh. You could be in fucking Alaska. You could be anywhere. If you had a fucking internet on your phone or anything, you'll fucking know immediately. Twitter just fucking spreads so goddamn fast. And this shit, you can go days and days and not hear about it. You know, you might miss the news, and then it like repeats and shit like they do now. It's just everything's so different how we get our information. And um, I'm actually supposed to be in Tokyo with T-Smooth and all of them, but I was trying to get fucking Pac on this song, you know, on this fucking truth song. So I'm fucking staying just for whatever. And um, the actual day that our meeting was supposed to happen was the actual day that Pac was pronounced dead, Friday the 13th, September 13th. The next day of his passing, I went to this tattoo parlor that was owned by uh, Mark Mahoney. He's super fucking legend, legendary tattoo artist. And um, by random ass chance, when I get there, and I'm getting there like, you know, early. This is like, you know, people get tattoos at nighttime. I see Kadada and Gaddafi. And a couple of the outlaws pull up. And it was just fucking crazy. They came out of a fucking, of a, out of an SUV and they come out. And that was the day that Kadada tattooed the All Eyes on Me picture, the, the, you know, the album cover, Portrait of Pac on her arm. It was just fucking crazy. And um, with that said, you know, Pac had died. I felt like that was my last chance to try to get the truth to pop. And I was like, man, I guess this shit just wasn't meant to be. So anyways, yeah, man. So I'm, I'm just kind of bummed out about the whole situation. I started to take some meetings. One of them was with one of my old friends, uh, Will I Am. And at the time, he used to go by Will 1X. 
And I used to DJ at this club. It was an 18 over club called Ballistics. And it was like one of the most fucking popping places in the world. NWA would show up and uh, there'd be battles going on on Friday nights and shit. And Will was one of the dudes who would win the battle like all the time. He, he was like one of the fucking, he had like the longest fucking, you know, run of, of wins in battle raps. And like, this was like during the era of Beverly Hills 90210. And um, the club was popping, right? There's fucking girls all the time there. Tori Spelling would be up in there and like, the main promoter of the club was Dave Faustino, fucking Bud Bundy, you know, married with children. He had the number one fucking show on television and actually it was the longest running syndicated TV show. So, you know, Dave's fucking paper, he was just rich as fuck. His bag was incredible back then, right? And um, another unknown rapper back then was battling on the mic against um, Will and I was Exhibit. And it was just fucking crazy, right? It was just a crazy era. Like I said, man, Easy e would pull up with my boy Terry Heller. They'd come to the club and like, I, I got to tell this story, man. One time I was at this chick's house and it was like after party, after ballistics and we're just all partying and shit. And um, I was smashing some girl in a room and I don't fucking remember who, what her name was. I don't remember, I remember she was a white chick. She was blonde. I don't remember anything else about her. And all I could think of was, damn, Easy e is in the next room fucking some girl. And I just couldn't, and it was fucking funny because, you know, the chick was like, yo, are you Okay. And like, maybe you should go fuck easy. And it was just funny because I just couldn't stop thinking about it. It was just fucking weird. I was high as fuck and it's crazy anyways. I know that story had nothing to do with nothing, but it was fucking cool. Um, he was my idol back then, Easy e in the late 80s and the early 90s, you know, um, until the rape, or like the super real breakup between Dre and him. You know, I even fuck with Easy still after Q was left. But, uh, you know, I started to fuck with Will and he was in a group called the Opbot Clan. And he was tied into so much fam. It's crazy. Like my boy, JJ Anderson. I had mentioned this dude on my, on the Mike Tyson podcast. His dad was Mike Tyson's head of security and just fucking just so many people in this Anderson family, man. It's fucking, JJ Anderson's brother was fucking Jamal Anderson of the goddamn Atlanta Falcons. All right. During the Dirty Bird era, this guy's one of the greatest fucking running backs in the Falcons history. Um, JJ Anderson and his crew, uh, he was part of a group called Blood of Abraham. They were signed to Ruthless Records, which is obviously Easy E's label. Even Bone just got signed there early on. And uh, it was funny because Will, Will used to tell me, Will I Am used to tell me that Bone Thugs used to try to roast on him, like bag on him and shit about his style. And he'd be like, yo, all right, y'all can talk about my fucking pants and everything, but y'all y'all want to fucking battle? Y'all ain't trying to battle on some bars. And like, I know Bone's style is totally different, but Will was fucking super lyricist back then. So, you know, um, Will was shopping a brand new group that he was in and the group was called the Black Eyed Peas. And his manager's name was Jan. And uh, I was in touch with this dude heavy. I wanted to sign this fucking group. And um, I even tried to give him some fucking demo money. And I played the shit and the shit was dope. It was just totally different. It was like the roots at that time. It was like, it was just real hip hop. Like it was alternative hip hop. It was just different. It was so fucking fresh though. You know, like I remember Will would fuck around with like Soho, which is a super underground electric song. Um, super OG house song called Soho. Um, hot music and um, at the same time while I was trying to do this demo I was taking meetings at Interscope for a new job because I just felt like fuck let me get a fresh start somewhere else and uh, Interscope was owned by Ted Fields and uh, and Jimmy Iovine both fucking enormous moguls obviously Jimmy Iovine is one of the biggest fucking moguls in the history of music in ever and Ted was a was a I don't think he was a billionaire but he was up there and uh, he was the heir in the family of uh, the Marshall Fields family. It's like old school department store shit. 
And um, back then, I was actually close to Ted Field's daughter, Danielle. So anyways, you know, I just had all these plugs, and I was trying to get these meetings. So, you know, um, I was a resident DJ at this club called Granville. And I was a resident DJ at Granville from like 95 to 98. And this was the hottest fucking nightclub in LA. I know I said Roxbury was, but that's an actual club. This actual night, Thursday nights, the hottest fucking club in Hollywood, right? It was ran by um, two friends of mine, Josh Richmond and Rick Colomaro. Rest in peace, Rick Colomaro, man. I, I fucking miss you, bro. Goddamn, man. Rick was um, part of Charlie Sheen's entourage. You'd see when Charlie Sheen was doing all these fucking crazy rants. Rick was there. Both of these guys were fucking legends, all right? Again, Thursday nights at Peanuts. I'm sure you heard of Peanuts and fucking a lot of OG rap songs. But uh, that was the actual venue. Um, Thursday nights of Granville, again, was like Studio 54 of our time. No joke. It was literally crazy. Ted Fields used to go to this club, right? This is the fucking older dude. And he'd frequent the spot. And that was another reason why he took the meeting with me. And at any given, any given week, any given night, all right, on a Thursday night, you would see A-list fucking celebrities, you know, like, and athletes and everything. Like, Pac would go there, fucking Chug. You would see Chris Farley. Chris Farley was there the week before he died and had an overdose. Um, I remember sneaking Kobe Bryant when he was there, when he first signed in as a rookie, and I had to sneak him in because he was fucking not old enough. Um, I can't even tell a story about this era without being fucking super sidetracked. I'm sorry, man. You know, I was getting like $500 a night there. And that's like getting $5,000 a night now for DJing a club in LA. LA pays DJs lower than any fucking other major city there is. So getting $500 a fucking night is unheard of. And there were only two real big DJs back at the time. And that was me and DJ AM. At the same time, my brother DJ Homicide had just started working, you know what I'm saying, with a, with a group called Sugar Ray. And they're a super punk band. And they were broke, but their time came like right after that. And when it came, holy shit, man, you know. Um, Homicide wrote and fucking produced a lot of their fucking hits. A lot of people don't know that. It's like, oh, he's a black guy in the band. He's a DJ. No, it's fucking way more than that. Homicide was one of my first friends that personally hit millions, you know, like legit. And he lived fucking big. He lived large. It was crazy. He's the first dude to let me borrow his Benz and fucking, you know, big body Benzes and Denali's and shit on rims. And he just, he, this dude had just killed it, you know. It was so dope to see one of my homies like crush shit. And at the same time, um, it was crazy, man. I was fucking friends with this girl, Stacy Ferguson, who later became Fergie. And uh, later she joined the Black Eyed Peas. This was not the time she was doing the Black Eyed Peas. She would come through all the time to the club. I would see fucking Dan Aykroyd at the club, okay? Like Naomi Campbell. Like, I'm talking like crazy fucking stars that show up in there. Owen Wilson and shit before he was famous. And like, um, Jimmy Iovine's assistant, this guy named Evan Strauss, um, he ended up getting a hold of that Black Eyed Peas demo and it was just history from there. You know, they signed with fucking Interscope. I wanted to do that deal so fucking bad. But uh, I knew I was leaving party anyway. And so um, now with Jimmy's co-sign, Jimmy Iovine, I hit up Dre's right-hand man, uh, this guy named Bruce Williams. And I was like, man, I heard that fucking Dre's trying to start a label. And I want in. Like, I want to get in. And Bruce was like, don't even trip, man. Let me tell Dre. Let me tell Dre. Let me tell DR. Are we good? Um, the only weird thing about this time is... My attorney, who wrote up my personal contracts for music, who was at actually one point was the president of Hollywood Records, which is under, fuck, Buena Vista Records. What the fuck were they under? Were they under Electra or Warner Brothers? Warner Brothers, I'm sorry. Hollywood Records is under Warner Brothers. His name was Peter Paterno. That's my attorney. 
And my attorney, Peter Paterno, happened to be Dr. Dre's attorney too. So it was just, it was just weird, you know, it was conflict of interest. So on the aftermath, what a different fucking world than working at Priority. Um, I'm talking like we're in a fucking, you know, I, I went from being in a high rise building on Sunset, a real high rise, a Hollywood high rise, the CNN building where Larry King fucking does his show to a tiny ass office in Sherman Oaks with five employees. Okay. That's what black market records was. Well, it wasn't aftermath, but black market records became aftermath. Right. But it was dope. Um, I didn't have a set office really anyways, but I had an office to work out of, you know, I mean, I didn't have like my own personal office, close the door, but uh, aftermath had just started and uh, I didn't have a credit card. I had none of that shit. And uh, like I said, the label's called black market records, but someone in the Bay area owned the name and they didn't want to sell it. And then when they did sell it, Dre was like, man, fuck that. I'm not paying $2 million for a fuck. I just left death row. I'm not fucking paying you $2 million. Um, so, you know, we were Aftermath Entertainment. And we we mostly worked out of uh, Record One Studios on Ventura Boulevard. And uh, Record One is fucking legendary. They just mentioned Record One. It's funny on, on that that documentary, Leaving Neverland. And um, it was legendary, super high-end. This is like A1 Studio. Michael Jackson recorded a few of his hit albums there. Uh, R. Kelly, so funny. R. Kelly, Michael Jackson, Jesus Christ. But Dre rented out the entire fucking studio for like five years. It fucking, I don't even want to tell you how crazy expensive that shit is. And um, on my first day, Dre tells me, he's like, hey, listen, man, don't be an N-word. Obviously he said the real word. And I was like, he's like, you my Asian. You the golden boy, you know? And I was like, all right, man, I'll let this little fucking, I don't really trip on that type of shit. That was not my thing. I know what he meant. I know the intention was coming from a good place. I wasn't on this Me Too bullshit back then. I hate that shit now. So he's like, don't worry about the office, all right? The men handle their business here in the studio, all right? If there's anything you fucking need, you just hit me up or you hit up fucking, um, the fuck is that motherfucking Manny Fresh looking motherfucker? I hated that guy, man. Motherfucking, God damn, I can't stand a dude who ran Dre's business. Uh, this is where you get shit done here in the studio, all right? And, you know, we just put out a compilation album, um, Aftermath Presents. And I thought it was dope. A lot of people who heard the album was dope. It just wasn't what they thought. They were thinking like, oh, I want Trey to come out with the fucking album album. You know, they wanted his album and this was not where he was at the time. It was all brand new artists. And uh, Dre had a single on there called Who Been There, Who Done That? And the video was fucking sick. You know, he's doing tango dancing and everything and fucking, you know, he put that he produced it, but like my boy Stu produced part of the song and whatever, produced the, the tango beat and everything else production on the album was fucking fire i don't want to hear shit from nobody it just wasn't known as that you know what i'm saying and um there was a lot of artists that were on that album but uh not all the artists on that on that compilation got actually signed you know um so i began my job at aftermath and at the time as soon as i signed fucking brand new fucking label we already have eight artists signed and no albums coming out right and i'm like Fucking great. You know, this is a priority record situation again, except I can't really, well, I mean, it was so funny. We're sitting in the office. We're like sitting in like, like storage room at the, at the studio and me and Dre are talking with Bruce and there was this gigantic fucking trash can, like the fucking 50 gallon or the fucking, I don't know how big, the enormous industrial size trash can you would see at like a restaurant. And it was filled with demo tapes and records already. One of them was like a fucking country group with these dudes who looked like fucking I, I can't even explain it. <laughs> like, fucking look like Hacksaw Jim, look like WWF fighters. And it was just crazy how many people had sent demos to Drake because they wanted to get signed. So um, I started out again, a new job, confused, you know. 
Um, I started running out. I was running the A&R department. So I was doing obviously, you know, the, the artists that were there. And uh, a guy named Mike Lynn was running the department with me. Mike had been a longtime friend of, uh, of Dre's and uh, Mike Lynn was in a group called Po Broken Lonely. And um, they were actually signed to, um, I think Atlantic, they were signed to a major and uh, they were one of the, one of the groups featured on the deep cover soundtrack and the deep cover soundtrack is monumental because that's where Dre and Snoop debuted their first song together. And um, it was kind of the first fucking actually first song on death row. Like I think deep cover kind of, yeah, in fact, no deep cover was, was uh, the first thing with the, I was like one of the first death row fucking uh, records and shit. So fuck all this shit, man. This is, this is like fucking me up so heavy right now. I'm so, I'm just tripping right now. Just thinking about how fucking nostalgic all these moments are. Um, Dre wasn't one to be bothered. So I had free run, you know, no one was in the office, you know, early on, it was a trip. Like I didn't have to come to the office at nine or 10 AM anymore or 9 AM or report to anybody. I didn't have to do none of that shit. It was like motherfuckers show up to the office, like one, two o'clock, maybe even three, four o'clock. And we'd run that studio, we'd be in the studio until two, three in the morning, right? And um, Dre was cool as fuck. Uh, he'd invite us to his mansion in um, the valley. And uh, I remember it was right off Winnetka and shit and uh, gated, it was like a fucking ranch area. And um, we even had an aftermath basketball team, you know, um, at the time, like Michael Bivens had a basketball team. Uh, you know, Michael Bivens is from New Edition. And uh, he was also in Bell Biff DeVoe, that song Poison. Anyways, he, he, had a, he had one of the biggest, most famous, uh, well, most, he had the best team in the league, in the music record league. Bad Boy Entertainment had a record, uh, had, a, had a fucking uh, a basketball team too. Anyways, I'm there and I'm off to Miami finally, right, for the How Can I Be Down conference. And I see a bunch of people who didn't even know I was not priority anymore. Like some employees and stuff like, yo, man, where are you going, dog? You with us? And I was like, oh, man, my boy Davey. And I was like, no, dog, I'm going to have math now. He was like, word, how the fuck did you get that job, you know? So um, we're in front of the hotel where the convention is, right? And I see this fucking gigantic Greyhound-sized bus, tour bus, enormous tour bus. And it had Master P, No Limit graphics everywhere. Master P's face everywhere. And, you know, they had those crazy... He was the person that brought that artwork, like that blingy artwork before fucking any of them dudes. Before. It was like a... It was a Southern, like, like Louisiana thing. Just the graphics were crazy. And... um. To this day, up to that day, nobody had ever seen anything like that, you know? And he parked that shit right in front so everybody could fucking see the fucking tour bus. And I remember being at the basketball game later that day and like Diddy was like, Puffy, actually, sorry, his Puff Daddy, Puffy, was like, yo, man, did you see that bus? Like he's talking to other people, talking about who the fuck is Master P? Like, yo, I need to get someone, get me in contact with Master P. And I remember Master P was buzzing so fucking hard that Puffy went on Hot 97 was like, yo, anybody get me on a record with Master P, man? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, let me know. So I see Master P, him and Boz, and uh, Boz is his right-hand man. And I walk up to P and I bypass like all 15 security and his entourage and shit. And it's all security people are like, who the fuck is this Asian guy probably right thinking this? And I'm like, what's up, fool? It's the first thing I said to him. And he's like, hey, bro, I need to talk to you. So he walks over to the side. You know, we walk, like, step into my office. And we walk to the side. And he's like, yo, man, get me on a song with Tupac, man. I got this track, man. I want Tupac to get, I want him to get on there. <sighs> I said something I should have never said, right? And to this day, I can't believe I even fucking said it. And I can't believe he didn't fucking punch me in the mouth. But I said, bro, come on, man. Tupac not fucking with you, bro. Like, you're like, you're the worst rapper, bro. You just, you're just terrible, you know? And 
at the time, how people looked at Master P's music is how people probably looked at like, I don't know, like Lil Pump or Lil Uzi or something. It's like they feel how mumble, mumble rap is today. It's like how people looked at P because it was a different type of rap. But P really ran the streets, you know, and even soon later, you know, he started running the clubs and the radio and everything. It was just, it's fucking crazy what No Limit did, you know. And at the time, he also had the best deal in music, which was another fucking dope thing. He was dropping an album every week, okay? 52 fucking albums in a year. He dropped an album every week. Like, Jesus, I can't even tell you. Like, it's never been done in radio. It's never been done ever. Anyways, um, I go to all these showcases and seminars, you know, and represent an aftermath. And finally, people keep talking. People are like, oh, man, the Jeff Jam showcase is going to be dope. This Def Jam shit's going to be dope. Violators is going to be crazy. And like at the time, Violators, like management and everything else. So they managed it. So if they didn't have you on Def Jam, they had you in fucking management. Sort of like what Rock Nation is now. It was like a fucking, it was like a conglomerate. It was just, it was crazy. It was a, it was a fucking monopoly damn near. And um, everyone kept talking about this Jeff Jam so showcase. And uh, it was the Roots, Old Dirty Bastard, Red Man, Met the Man. And I can't begin to tell you, like Tribe performed. And these were like, Tribe Called Quest, man. It's like the most relevant, like they're so fucking relevant. They're only the biggest, most relevant artists in the world in rap were there. Right before that, I was at the Priority Records uh, showcase. And uh, <laughs> it was actually, um, you know, at, at this spot, like down the street. And uh, it wasn't packed. And it was crazy because Ice Cube was for me. You know, it was a fucking enormous goddamn fucking rap star. And West High Connection was the, obviously the headline thing for the, for the party showcase. And they had like the number one top selling album in the country. And the East Coast just hated, you know what I'm saying? It was just, that's just what it was. And it was a good show. It was crazy. Q-Tip from Tribe Called Quest was there because, you know, they did, uh, was it Poetic Justice? Or, no, it's a, the fuck was, I forgot how Cube was tied to Tupac, uh, to Q-Tip back then. But it was a good show. Um, rest in peace, Crazy Tunes, man. God damn, DJ Crazy Tunes. Um, so I'm in a showcase, you know, Def Jam showcase. And uh, I'm upstairs, like, you know, in the area, about to go sit down. And uh, I see a lot of homies from different record labels, loud as shit. I see Bigger B, man. Yo, shout out to Bigger B. Rest in peace, Bigger B, legend. Rest in peace, big pun. And I see Old Dirty Bastard walking around like crazy. He's just like walking around in like, you know, a rugby shirt, and like some baggy ass jeans and some Timberlands. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, if you don't know who Old Dirty Bastard is and how enormous he was to rap, then like, I, I can't even begin to, to just tell you how fucking big of a fucking star Old Dirty Bastard was. And uh, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, Priority Records opened up East Coast office. And this was also the time that when they opened up the office, I moved to NYC and I lived in New York for a while. And uh, we had Duck Down Records. Shout out to my boy Buckshot Shorty. Shout out to Drew Ha. Man, rest in peace, Sean Price. And, uh, you know, Black Moon, Smith & Wesson. They had to change the name to fucking uh, Coco Brothers. Um, that whole... Duck Down family was my, they're my peoples, man. In fact, um, that trip, or that How Can I Be Down trip, I was hanging out with a lot of them for a while, you know, like like for a bit. I, and I, I rented a car and shit. I rented a Land Cruiser at the time, and that was like, you know, Dre was like, yeah, man, go out there and do what you got to do. And it was like almost equivalent to having a Range Rover, you know. And Sean Price got in my car, and um, like another member from OGC got in the car with me and we just started cruising around South Beach. We started driving up and down Washington and Collins and, you know, Ocean Ave and shit. And um, Sean just had jokes and shit. So anyways, I'm sorry, man, I'm sidetracking everywhere. So back to the show, Def Jam showcase, everyone performed just crushed it. The place is just, the crowd is going crazy, everything. People are screaming. And DJ Enough 
was the DJ that was playing in between, like playing a, you know, regular music that wasn't being played there. And um, even though I was a big club DJ in LA, nobody in like the rap game really knew me. You know, this was like different. You couldn't promote. The word of mouth was just how you got your shit in hip hop, hip hop. I was a DJ in nightclubs for other stuff like Hollywood events. And this was a 95% New York event. All right? I'll never forget ever in my mother fucking life. I'm with a lot of my ex-coworkers from Priority Records and DJ Enough was playing old break shit, break beats and everything. And he stopped the music completely. And he said, yo, 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 yo. Is New York in the house? Let me hear you say. And the whole fucking club, 5,000, three, it was an enormous nightclub. Like no clubs are built like this. Like 3,000 people. By the way, this club is Mansion. If you guys went to Mansion in fucking um, in Miami, that's what it turned into. Thousands of people are screaming, hell yeah. And I literally was like, I had goosebumps. I was like, holy shit. I said, God damn. I looked at one of my coworkers, my ex-coworker Jasmine, and I was like, yo, we in the wrong fucking place. Like, I love East Coast music, I ain't wrong, but it was like, you know, I was LA dude, like to the heart. And then right after that moment, the moment after he said his New York in the house, the place went fucking crazy. He put on Mob Deep, Survival of the Fittest. And I thought the fucking roof was going to collapse and the fucking club was going to fall apart. Like they went fucking crazy. Okay. So now it's time for the headline event. And it was a uh, red man and method man. And uh, I think I mentioned it earlier, but you know, I ended up be- becoming, I was like, you know, for a few shows, I was Keith Murray's DJ and I would DJ some shows for red man. And, um, you know, because I was down with, with Death Squad, you know, that gave me insane clout with like the big fucking DJs. You know what I'm saying? Like all the individual scratch pickles, um, beat junkies, the real fucking major DJs. Shout out to Melody, Babu, Red Matic, fuck my boy Mixmaster, Mike Kubert, all them. But uh, Keith Murray was one of the craziest motherfuckers in hip ever. And if they ever do a fucking goddamn documentary on him, Jesus fucking Christ, man. It was crazy. So um, if Keith Murray never went to jail, He'd have been a hundred times bigger, but you know, it's just shit is so different. So Red Man and Method Man are doing a crazy ass dope show. And like towards the end of the show, Reggie Mer- you know, Reggie Red Man is standing on top of a speaker. And Method Man is opposite of the stage. It's a big ass fucking stage, right? And out of nowhere, there's a lot of space in between. Out of nowhere, old dirty bastard enters their stage. And they don't got no songs together. You know what I'm saying? Unless Method Man's gonna do something with Wu-Tang. But he shoves his fucking hands like, man, fuck y'all. You know, like, forget you. Like that type of gesture with his hands. And I forgot to mention earlier, Old Dirty Bastard performed at this fucking showcase, okay? Like, he had a set two hours earlier. This was a fucking super long-ass concert, right? Or showcase. Old Dirty Bastard performed and he passed out on stage. He was taken out on a stretcher and into an ambulance, meaning he had to go get checked in to a fucking ambulance, go to triage and all that shit, right? Anyways, so he came back. He's on the middle of the fucking stage. Red Man and Meth Man can't even fucking see him. He pushes the DJ over. This is a fucking show with thousands of people, enormous show, right? He starts pulling wires and shit and unplugs the fucking sound. He fucked the entire show up. It was fucking, it was incredible. It was crazy. This is, how can I be down 1990? Six, 97, fuck, 97, sorry. No, 96, I think, shit, this is crazy. Um, It was a crazy fucking night, all right? And um, shout out to Dante Ross, man. Dante Ross is a fucking legendary dude. He's one of the people I looked up to heavy. When I was in college, I was listening to fucking, 
you know, um, KMD and a bunch of records and third base and shit was, he was like on a part of, and I was like, damn, this dude, like you see, this is when you looked in the back of a fucking CD or an album or record and you'd see the credits and the credits were the dopest shit because there'd be shout outs there and everything. And this was like a fucking dope ass thing. People don't do that shit because you don't have hard CDs like they used to or hard vinyl. I mean, very few people do. So anyways, I, I used to super look up to Dante Ross. Um, going back, I get back to LA and I tell Dre all about the conference and everything. And he's like, man, fuck all that shit, man. He's like, listen, I'm glad you got out there and you know, you got to fucking let people know you at Aftermath now. But look, at, we're about to do this fucking American Pip soundtrack. So don't get sidetracked, okay? And um, the Hughes brothers are, document, are directing the documentary. If you know the Hughes brothers, they directed Menace of Society. So they're, you know, they're fucking killing it. They were, they were doing their thing. And um, Dre was low-key obsessed. Dr. Dre was low-key obsessed with pimps. You know, like pimping, the whole pimp game. You know what? Most guys I know of that era that were in rap were, were fucking obsessed with pimps and shit. Like um, Bishop Don Juan. Anyways, so he tells me, let's get the dopest motherfuckers on this album ASAP. All right? I don't want no motherfucking playing. Let's get this fucking shit going. I got the soundtrack rights. So I want you to start taking meetings and get this shit popping. You know, he didn't say popping, but I'm just saying. So this was like probably January 1997 now. And um, I get Eric Sermon to come to the studio. And uh, by the way, I mentioned there's like super crazy competition between me and Mike Lynn. But Mike Lynn was like an actual close friend of Dr. Dre's way before I met Dre. You know, he was a close friend. So he had like way more access to Dre. He had access to Dre's ear and everything. He can get to Dre way quicker than I could. You know, I had to page Dre and whatever. And uh did I have Dre's cell phone fucking number? I don't remember, man. I had a page Dre. I had Dre's pager number. And uh, remember, cell phones are different. If you, By the way, if you called somebody's cell phone, they got charged for that as well. So you're paying for that phone call every minute that you know they're on the phone. If you call them, they're, they're getting paid for it. If you call them, obviously, you know, you call somebody, you're, you're being charged. So, you know, Eric Sherman's a huge star. So that shirt stirred up a lot of shit in the studio and everything. So I'm like, I don't give a fuck about Mike. I'm not tripping. I'm just gonna start hitting buddy. Every single person up I know in the business in my Rolodex, and um, I got Fredrill Star, and uh, Fredrill Star was on a TV show called Moesha at the time, you know, with Brandy, and um, he was obviously in the group Onyx, and he had an enormous hit record that's legendary in rap forever called Slam, and him and his cousin Sticky Fingers, they started coming down the studio more, and I was working on songs, we were trying to do these songs for for um, American Pip soundtrack, and we actually had some dope-ass songs, listen man, I had some crazy-ass unreleased songs on a dat, and uh, if you don't know what a dad is, this was, you know, digital audio tape, which at the time was even higher quality sound than a CD was. Um, is it super, just insane fucking archive music that never got released. Um, my boy, Adam 12, his name was DJ Alphabet back in the day. I remember he had a, well, I may have the same access, but uh, Jay-Z wrote that song still, D-R-E, you know, the first, first single off of Dr. Dre 2000. And when you reference the track, you actually rap the song so someone can hear you rapping. I don't know if you know this, but like, let's say for instance, um, fuck, Drake, Controller, I don't know a song. And if someone, could you imagine if someone sang that entire song and rapped the entire song and then Drake listened to it so he can memorize it. So that's what Jay-Z did. And we had that reference track over the still beat. It was fucking crazy. So anyways, going on, uh, me, me, Sticky Fingers and, and Fred were working on these songs and uh, they told me they're about to go to a studio and go visit Biggie. And I'm like, Oh shit, word? You about to go fucking hang out with Biggie Smalls? I'm like, yo, man, I want to meet Big, you know? And I was like, I want to get him on this fucking soundtrack, dog. You know how big this sound? This is Dr. Dre, bro, you know? And um, 
even though there was a big beef going on with Death Row and Bad Boy, like Dre had no beef with nobody. East Coast loved fucking Dre and Dre loved the East Coast. So I asked him, I was like, oh, can I come, man? I want to get him on the soundtrack. And at the time, Biggie was living in LA. You know, he was like staying in LA, like working on, you know, finishing up uh, Life After Death. And he was in the studio nonstop. And the studio he was at was at this place in North Hollywood called NRG Studios. I'll never forget. It was like an alternative weird studio where like, like groups like Blink 80, 182 would record out of there. It was just like a crazy, like it just, they had like tribal blankets and shit and like Native American like decor. It was a tripped out studio. Anyways, I told him, I said, listen, man, I'm gonna take you guys over to the studio, right? And you live right by there because they used to live in this apartment building right on Magnolia and between Lancashire and Vineland, which is like a few minutes away from the studio. So um, they're like, yeah, man, let's go. Like, fuck it, come on. Yeah, let's go, Ben Baller. Let's go to the studio, man. I got you. I'll introduce you to Biggie. So we get to the studio and uh, I see this chicken there. And uh, it's funny, she's cute. You know what, man? It's so fucking crazy. There's that song, Area Codes by Ludacris. And um, no, hold on. What the fuck? No, no, no. The Tupac Drace, uh, Tupac Snoop song. Every little place we go. Every little city we go, everywhere I go, I see the same hoes. That song by Pac, it was on the Pac album. Um, and where Snoop is talking about, I see this chick here, I see a chick here, I see a chick in this video. And the chick that I see in the, in the studio, I'll never forget how she looked. Later on when I was working with, you know, I had a group called the Golden State Warriors. They're actually called, ended up being called the Golden State Project. It was a rapper named Safir. It was Razcast, who was my artist over at Priority and Exhibit. And I remember when, after Biggie had died, like we're working on songs and this chick pulled up with them at the, to our studio and I thought it was fucking crazy. Anyways, sidetrack, crazy ass Hollywood stories. Sorry, man. So I'm in the studio. Uh, first person I meet is her. Second person I meet is Lil C's. And uh, the studio is just, just like, they're just playing some random music in the background. It wasn't Biggie's music or nothing. And Biggie finally walks in and he's fucking big, like big as a big dude, like like for real. He's, he's, he's uh, about my height and he's, you know, I don't know, shit, I don't want to guess his weight, but I would say maybe, you know, maybe like 300 something, and he's uh, walking in with a cane, he had a cane that he's walking with, I'll never forget, and um, he sees the food on the studio board, and I'll never forget, he had like Jerry's Deli bags, and he had these mashed potatoes, no exaggeration, he had fucking six orders of mashed potatoes, okay, on his fucking plate, this motherfucker, they were stacked like a fucking mountain, and um, Biggie, when he walks in the room, he was like, man, my food is here. Yeah, I'm hungrier than a hostage. And when he said I was hungrier than a hostage, I just started busting up. I laughed. You know, this, this dude was really charismatic. He was funny. He was a comedian. He's, dude, I could see, you know, why this dude was so fucking fly. And so, you know, he was eating for a bit. And I told him I was there. And, and uh, Fredro and, and Sticky introduced me to him. And so I started playing some music for him, some tracks. I told him I'm doing a soundtrack for the American Pimp. And he was like, oh, shit, word, American Pimp. Okay, yeah. So he liked a few of the tracks. Um, and then there's this track with King T. And uh, he was fucking with King T. He knew who King T was. And King T is a hip-hop legend. And, and like OG, OG hip-hop. Um, he's from, from Compton. He's super West Coast. And he can rap his ass off. And I was King T's A&R. So anyways, I tell Biggie, um, you know, what you think? You know, are you, are you, you, know, you, you down with, you know, you want to get on the soundtrack? And he's like, man time is kind of fucked up. You know, I'm finishing up mixes and mastering life after death. I'm about to shoot a video for hypnotize. And, um, you know, I'm like, fuck. He's like, but yo, man, I, I like this shit, you know? And, and, um, you know, I'm gonna holla at you later. So, um, 
me and, and, and Fredjo and, uh, and Sticky, we leave the studio. And I told Fredjo, I'm like, yo, man, that dude was fucking cool as fuck. You know, like, fuck, I owe you for this, you know. So later the next week, it was the Super Bowl. And it was also my birthday. So the Super Bowl was January 26th. I'll never forget. My B-Day was the next day. And Dre was having a big-ass party at his house. But it was like a private thing. It was like really homies and fam. And uh, I invited Fredjo to come with me as my guest. You know, I was like, fuck it. I'm sorry. He would be cool. And actually, no, I'm sorry. I texted. I, uh, I um, paged Dre. And I was like, hey, man, is it cool if Fredjo comes? He's like, yeah, come on. So we get to Dre's big-ass fucking mansion. Dre loved East Coast artists, like I said. And um, it was almost like he fucking favored them. And we get to Dre's crib to the party. And we're like one of the first people there. Literally me and Fred are the first people there. And he has this intercom in his house. And he's like, yo, who goes there? And I was like, oh, it's Ben Baller, man. He's like, oh, Ben Yang. It's Ben Yang, my motherfucking Asian brother, you know? So um, I don't know if you remember, I posted, uh, you guys that, that follow me, I posted a throwback picture. You could check it out, go down my timeline on my Instagram. There's a throwback picture of um, a party. Um, it was a Super Bowl party. It was that party, you know, that was that. And uh, it was fucking funny, man, because there was the picture. Everyone's looking in the opposite direction, but Dre's looking dead in center. And right before he took the picture, Pierre, this comedian, he said, anyone that look in the camera is a bitch. So everyone looked opposite. But then Dre hopped in and photobombed the picture right in front. And he was looking at the picture. Anyways, going on, man. So I'm still grabbing music for the soundtrack for, uh, for American Pimp. And uh, I fly out to New York City and I hit up... Um, you know, a few folks of mine trying to lock in some people to get more songs in. And at the same time I was in New York City, it was one of the rare times that the Grammys was in New York, you know. And uh, Dre was nominated for Best Duo or, you know, Group, Collab, whatever, for California Love with Tupac. And he's like, hey man, um, you and Mike are the only one out there. Mike's not tripping, he ain't going. So uh, go to the Grammys and if we win, you can go out there and accept the award on behalf. But he goes, but we ain't gonna win, that's why I know I'm not going. And I don't know how the fuck he knew he wasn't going to win or whatever, but even though Dre won a bunch of Grammys, I thought it was fucking sick. I'm sorry. Listen, man, this is Dr. Dre. This is the fucking most legendary dude in hip hop, producer, everything you can think of, beats by fucking Dre. And they're nominated for a fucking California Love, one of my fucking one of my favorite fucking songs. And if they win the Grammy, I could go up there and fucking accept it. This is epic. You know, just even the fact that I had a chance to. But anyways, Crossroads by Bun Thugs and Harmony won. And so like, you know, as soon as I get up there, I hit up my boy Stevie J. Um, so fucking random and crazy now because Stevie J is fucking married to Faith Evans now. It's mind fucking blowing. Um, he's the biggest producer at Bad Boy at that time. He's one of the biggest producers that, that was at Bad Boy, period. And he was working under Puffy. And um, when I was working the Truth album early on, Stevie J did a lot of shit for for the truth um, with because he was T-Smooth's boy. Like, that's how I know him is through T-Smooth. You know, by the way, I keep forgetting to fucking, because there's so many different pockets and holes and shit that there are in this story. Not necessarily holes, but just different parts because so much crazy shit went on in this era. And I'm not trying to go make this story four hours fucking long. But I forgot to mention, Missy Elliott wrote a lot of the Truth's album. And Missy fucking Elliott wrote the truth first single. She even rapped on it, okay? She wasn't even signed yet herself and I was fucking with Rep Missy. Like, I fuck with, Missy fuck with me so heavy. I fuck with her so heavy. I have pictures of her in like a fucking photo booth at Rexall st Drugstore, which is now CVS right across the street from the Belly Center on the corner of Beverly and La Cienega. And like, every time she came to LA, she hit me. Every single fucking time. When she was working on Aaliyah's album, she played me the album before and I was like, yo, this sounds crazy because I didn't even know who Timbaland was. But you know, they're both from Virginia and she played me the fucking album. She played me Aaliyah's you know, album. Like, it was just crazy. And even after she blew up, 
And she had like the fucking hee 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 ha and all that shit and fucking everything. Her fucking album was one of my her first album. So fucking incredible. And um, one time I was driving back to my apartment and she followed me in a white pasture van with like, she was like six guys and like fucking security, whatever. She followed me like 15 blocks just to say hi because she didn't have my phone number. We hadn't talked in a long time. Sorry, man. Going back to the story at hand, I fuck with Missy Heavy. That's my people's and it's just crazy because this was an era when, you know, she wasn't famous. Um, she was known inside the industry. Uh, so I hit up a CVJ and he told me he was down, but a lot of cats were kind of iffy because of the beef between the East Coast and West Coast. And like, you know, I was like, the beef is more with death row, you know what I'm saying? And Dre's always been cool. So I don't know, man, Stevie was, I don't know. And there was just a lot going on. So, you know, I tried to get the Lost Boys, um, even Ice-T was, uh, Ice-T was in the fucking movie, American Pimp. I saw Ice-T. I remember this club called Expos. And Expos was like right midtown, like 44th or 45th. I forgot where the fuck Expos, but it was right there. And me and Ice hung out a little bit. Uh, remember, I was Ice-T's A&R. He's like my, damn near my godfather. And I was just trying to get a bunch of people on this soundtrack. The entire time I was in New York, I had a personal security guard. Never forget, security guard went everywhere I went. This, like I said, this beef was real tense. But anyways, I got really sick, man. I got super fucking sick. In fact, I had to go to the fucking emergency room because I got so sick. They hired a fucking house doctor at the hotel. Never forget, I was staying at the fucking, um, fuck with the store. What the fuck? It wasn't the Paramount. Was it the Millennium? I think I was staying at the Millennium Hotel. I forgot. It was right there in, 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 you know, in Midtown. Anyways, I got super sick. I got the fucking flu. I got like 104 degree temperature. My heart rate was going really fast. And it was just like one of those weird things. I had asthma as a kid. I just got really fucking sick. So I had to fucking fly back home. And then um, I tried to hit Biggie up for this track. It, it was just a, just a random time. And um, I'm in the studio with Sticky Fingers and we're finishing up a song that he did because we're trying to hit this Vibe party, Vibe magazine party. And um, the Vibe party is going on at the, at the Peterson Museum, uh, you know, the Auto Museum right on Fairfax in Wilshire. Next thing you know, Sticky gets a page and he calls someone back and he say, hey man, Biggie just got shot, you know? And Sticky's like, yo man, you know, fucking Big just got shot. And I was like, Big just got shot? I was like, oh shit, okay. What the fuck you want to do? And he's like, yo man, let's fucking head over there. Now, we're at like, fuck, Woodman and Ventura. And I'm like, fuck this shit. Let's head over there. So we get in the GS and we smash over there. And I get over there super fast, like 15 minutes, right? This is obviously way before traffic. And um, when I found out he got shot, I thought to myself, I was like, you know, he's too high profile. They're going to fucking take him over to Cedar sinai So let's just try to see a Cedar Cedar sinai So that was one of the closest emergency rooms to him. Actually, there's a hospital a block away from that, that venue. I don't know if they knew that. They probably didn't. There's a hospital called Midway or Midway or Midwest Hospital right there at fucking uh, San Vicente and, uh, and, and Orange, like literally a fucking three blocks away, like one minute drive. But I had a feeling they're gonna take him to, to Cedar Sinai. So we get to Cedar Sinai. It was like kind of like it was like a a weird moment. And I see the brat in the middle of the street, and she's crying. And I was like, "Fuck, this is bad." And the energy was all over the place. It was super dark. It was weird. It was awkward. And then I remember I was like, "Oh shit!" They're like, "Yo, Big died." And I was like, "Fuck, man." I remember going home and thinking, "Fuck, like what the fuck is going on in the rap?" You know. And to make even things worse, to this story even ended off, the American Pimp soundtrack didn't happen. At least not with Aftermath or nothing, you know what I'm saying? Just a lot of time had passed. Um, I met a, you know, a lot of new producers, a lot of famous rappers and shit during the summertime. 
And uh, one of them was this, this white boy by the name of Mike Dean. And this is uh, summer of 1997. And I talk about this shit with Mike to this day. Um, he's been such a big part of fucking the culture of hip hop and Southern rap and working with fucking rap a lot to, you know, shit dude. he produced like the last couple Kanye albums and he produced fucking Travis Scott's fucking album. And, you know, Mike Dean's just a fucking legend. I've known this dude forever. You see this guy walked in with like short OP shorts on, like a surfer shirt. Like it just was so wrong. Like it just didn't fit in the picture. I couldn't fucking believe this shit. Anyways, Dre had been wanting to sign Nas for a long time, right? He's trying to get him. And uh, that obviously wasn't going to happen. He fucking loved Nas. I remember he was doing, uh, he produced a couple of tracks for Nas and that was a big deal because Dre had never produced for an East Coast rapper before. It was like, these are different times again. Let me explain this to you. So he wanted to sign Nas's group, The Firm, which he was in. But uh, I don't think Steve Stott was like letting it happen at the time. And um, me and Steve talked about this shit at Kevin Durant's fucking house or his apartment in, in San Francisco just like two months ago. It was fucking crazy. This was the era when the Trackmasters, Trackmasters were the biggest fucking producers in, in the rap game. They're like fucking huge, super famous. Um, they're out of the East Coast, obviously. And, and uh, they needed to be involved with this. You know, Dre's obviously a fucking producer, so he wanted to produce the whole album, whatever. Dre's really the biggest producer in rap, though, period. It doesn't fucking matter, whatever. Maybe there's some conflict, I don't know. But um, the deal got done. Ended up recording most of the album in Miami. Um, I got Melman signed, finally. Melman produced, you know, half of the fucking 2001 Dr. Dre 2001 album. And uh, I got him a deal. He got two songs placed on the album. I'll never forget. Um, meanwhile, King T has one of the dopest fucking albums. Like literally at the time, his album was fucking so fucking good. And it's being shelved. It, it was just fucking crazy. The producer, Hit Boy, um, Hit Boy, he, he, uh, he told me when I first met Hit Boy, um, that was one of his, he said it was one of his favorite albums, King T, Thy Kingdom Comes. I was an a that album. You know, this is after fucking Hit Boy had produced, you know, N-Word in Paris, Kanye and Jay-Z song, N-Words in Paris. And um, when I told him, I was like, yo, man, I was the a on the album. He bugged out. He was like, yo, you really got a music background. You know, there's things about it. And it was King T ended up putting that album out. Like I said, you know, obviously he heard it, uh, Hit Boy heard it. And uh, he had put on his own, he had to put on Aftermath. You know, I felt fucking bad as fuck. Um, before the Firm album could even like drop, right? Like it actually came out in stores, Okay. I got a check from Dre and I never got a single check in my life for over 10,000. I got some checks at priority, like our Christmas bonus was double our paycheck. So like, you know, I never really got gigantic checks. I got a check that was $75,000. I remember trying to cash the checks. I just want to see what 75 grand looked like. I've never had that kind of money. $75,000 was so much fucking money to me. It was crazy, right? I thought I could buy a house and a car and everything. I just, I was just different times. And, um, Again, I was so fucking stupid. You know, this is when Dre tells me, you know, he says, hey man, making a million dollars is easy. Keeping it is hard as fuck, you know. I just wish I was smarter, you know. I, I still can't believe, just, just <laughs> if I had been smarter with that $75,000, I would probably still be in the music business now, which fucking thank God I was dumb then, you know, because I fucking hate the music business. But I remember Dre pulling me to the side after I got the money. And he says, hey man, don't be an N-word. And when he said the N-word, he said with the E-R, not N-I-G-G-A. He said, you know, he, he said N-I-G-G-E-R. And I was like, fuck, you know, I wasn't trying to hear none of that shit. I didn't give a fuck what Dre was going to tell me. I didn't give a fuck about none of that shit. I was waiting him to fucking stop talking. And at the end of his little speech to me, I was like, yo, why aren't you telling Butter 
You know what I'm saying? Why don't you tell them fucking Stu? Why don't you tell these other guys, you know, what to do with their fucking money? And he's like, listen, man, you ain't them. You know what I'm saying? You my Asian, man. You my, you know, you my golden child, man. You, you know, you smarter. And I was like, man, fuck all that bullshit. So as soon as I fucking got out of the fucking studio, you know, everyone went out and bought shit, right? They went out and got new cars and got sounds in their shit. And, you know, the next day, I was like, fuck this shit. As soon as I fucking left the studio, I went to Century West BMW in North Hollywood and I bought a fucking M3. I got my first BMW ever. I got a four-door M3. I traded in my fucking GS300 and uh, like I got an E36 four-door M3. It was Cosmos black. The shit was fucking, I love this car so fucking much, right? Then I went all the way to get, um, I went to this jewelry store called JR's Diamonds in Sherman Oaks, right? And uh, I went there and uh, there's this dude who was running the shop. He was young. In fact, he was maybe a year or two younger than me. And his name was Steve. How fucking weird is that? His name is Steve too, right? Because my cousin's name is Steve. And he sold me a Rolex Datejust, you know, stainless steel Rolex with a diamond bezel. And it had a blue dial with diamonds on it too. It was fucking crazy because at the same time, my cousin Steve was making jewelry and um, he just took all my uncle's business pretty much. And he asked me to bring him clients, you know, and he was at the Slauson. So like, I didn't want to drive down to the hood with that much cash on me. And so like, you know, after, um, it was just fucking crazy that the first jeweler I bought a crazy watch was name is Steve. It's a white boy. And then my cousin's name is Steve. Anyway, so after I copped all this new shit, right? I copped all this materialistic shit, got a BMW and a Rolex. I go to the studio the next day and I'm wearing a Versace shirt. I never forgot. I got that shit in Miami and I had a Rolex and I got the car and I, I blocked. Dre's Range Rover in, Dre sees me, sees, looks at me up and down from head to toe, and he didn't speak to me for one fucking month. Like, it was fucking crazy. Like, no joke, he didn't talk to me for a fucking month. At this exact time, you know, I'm DJing a lot more big events, you know, um, I was DJing a lot more clubs and stuff, and it was a crucial time for me because I had some money, you know, more than I ever had, but again, I thought this money would never run out, you know, and uh, I was at strip clubs. I kept buying new clothes. I was buying fucking Mecca and Nietzsche and everything, whatever. And I was eating at the best restaurants. I was remember going to fucking Cafe Med, which is on Sunset Plaza. I had a couple girlfriends. Like I got myself a, like a doper, bigger apartment. I had like, you know, crazier stereo system. And I was thinking to myself, what's my next move? You know? And then, you know, the firm album came out and it didn't do as big as we all thought it would. And we thought it was gonna go like platinum out the gate, you know, fucking phone tap, like this shit was dope. It was like a weird hex on me, you know? And I was like, fuck, what am I gonna do? You know, how long can I actually DJ for? You know, should I start to make beats? Like, you know, like what the fuck should I do? This was an enormous crossroads that I was like hitting, you know, like just faced with. And one of my boys, Rich, he bought an MPC 3000 and he started to make beats. And to this day, he's still, he's been producing you know, um, making fucking music for Robin Thicke and shit. And uh, he's had it like just enough success to keep him going this long, you know, and he's just, he's, he was producing, he was making, and the crazy thing is I was obviously way more deep into music than he was and he figured it out. And I, part of me kind of wishes I did that part and part of me wishes I, you know, I remember when the, the rapper Jin came out, I told Dre, I was like, yo man, if this dude even goes fucking, if he sells 200,000 records, cause we check SoundScan every week. If he sells 200,000 records, I'm going double platinum Dre, just off my image alone. Like, motherfucking sign me, you know. There was actually a time where I actually fucking hit up. I never fucking ever told this story publicly ever. There was a time, way after the time of, like, I'm out of the music business. And I remember we're filming the Song Cry video for Jay-Z at Michael Jackson's house. And I told Dame, 
me and Dame were super close still. And I said, Dame, I was like, yo, bro, I think y'all should fucking sign me. And I think Jay-Z should write my rhymes and I should be a fucking rapper. And I remember they had a serious talk about it. Anyways, going back to my boy, you know, um, Rich, he's producing and everything else. So I thought about it. Should I use the money that I have left and buy studio equipment and start producing? And I thought to myself, man, man fuck all that bullshit, man. I'm just going to fucking, you know, I'm going to use that money for other shit. So it starts getting dry, like real dry, you know, in aftermath. We haven't dropped a fucking hit record yet, nothing. And Dre tells the few producers that are on payroll that are signed to aftermath, yo, man, check this out. If y'all want to leave, y'all can go ahead and leave and go do your thing. And I thought that was fucking weird. You know what I mean? It was like very weird because these guys were producing a lot of fucking music in there. So the vibe wasn't the same in the studio, you know. We all been there over a year and nothing had hit. And uh, really, we were waiting for fucking Dre to drop the fucking Chronic 2000. That was what the album was supposed to be called. And um, he was just on hiatus status. I don't know what it, my mind was going through. And it was just, again, it was just weird. So he tells one of his main producers, Stu Fingers, who at the time was called Stooby Doo. He's like, um, if you want to leave, man, go ahead and leave, man. And uh, he tells Butter, the other, the main producer, like the biggest producer there next to Chris Glove Taylor. He's like, hey, if you want to leave, go ahead. So both of them are like, fuck this. We're about to be out. Let's go make some money. Let's go do our own thing. Let's go work with fucking anyone we want to work with now. And let's sell some beats. But I already had a couple hits before he signed with Aftermath. He um, super fucking talented. He produced the biggest single on the West Side Connection album, Bow Down. Um, he produced actually a few songs on the West Side Connection album. Stu had some hits too and everything else. And so I got both of them. I was like, hey, listen, man, let me manage you guys. Right. And we all left Aftermath. And I was like, listen, let me manage you guys. And, uh, I started a corporation called uh, 213 Entertainment. And then I started a company with them called Mash Entertainment. And, uh, you know, one was for management, other one was for tax purposes and the corp and everything, you know. And so we started to get some placement on records and stuff. You know, we were on soundtracks. Um, we got some songs on WC's album. At that time, WC started bubbling, started getting hot again. And he was West Coast legend. And I uh, just getting a bunch of random work. In fact, when we we're taking meetings and shit as, you know, producers and stuff, I got to sit down with Richard Branson twice. If you don't fucking know, Richard Branson's a fucking CEO of Virgin, you know, he's a fucking billionaire. And it's just crazy because the dude was so cool too. And um, I had all this access, it's nuts. And we're shopping this group that we had called The Nade, which is actually short for Serenade. And it was just fucking three young dudes, two brothers and a, a cousin. And they were so dope, man. These guys were like, they were, they're, these guys were like during the same time as Immature, like that time, um, you know, Omarion and all that, all that B2K. So this is the before that. This is Omarion's brother, what's his name? Marcus Houston. These kids were so, so dope, man. It's, it's just like, let, let, me, let me stop and say this, man. Remember, this is the time and era of the day where nobody, majority of artists that were had a deal or were about to get a deal had no fucking clue how bad these record deals that they're about to sign were. They had no idea. They didn't have a clue what fuck publishing meant. They didn't know what splits were. They didn't know what royalties. They just had terrible deals. And it, it was in a way, it was their fault, you know? They had terrible representation. The attorneys were fucking scumbags. But, you know, they just weren't knowledgeable and they didn't study, you know? And uh, I was shopping their, their demo and uh, while well, I also managed these producers and they were going to produce even more songs. We were trying to do a couple things. We had a couple hits. They, uh, we even sat down with Tamika Wright, which is crazy, right? Tamika Wright is, uh, was Easy es ex-wife and uh, she ran fucking Ruthless Records after. I don't know if she ran this state. I'm not sure. And uh, she wanted to sign the group. There was no doubt about it. She's like, fuck it, let's do it. She's ready to give us anything we wanted. Um, I sat down with Steve Rifkin, you know, Loud Records, Wu-Tang, fucking Mob Deep, and uh, Big Pun. Uh, so anyways, sat down with Tamika again, and I was ready to get this deal going. And their uncle, the uncle of the group, the Nade, was a gang, he's a gangbanger, he's a gangster. 
and he started handling the career. He read a little bit about, you know, music business and everything else. And he was like, he cock blocked the whole situation. And then um, the group never took off. He tried to do it independently, just never happened. And I always wanted to tell him like, motherfucker, I told you so, you know, but you know, was, the fuck am I gonna do it? it so that was it. And uh, after a little bit, you know, again now money ran dry. It's like 98 or so, 99, whatever. Um, Money ran dry and I became broke as fuck. Like broke, broke as fuck. And I was dating this chick who was a stripper. And uh, it's fucking crazy I say that, but she made like real decent money, right? Just, just, it was just, I don't even know what the fuck even possessed me, but she was actually taking care of me and she was always cool. She was like, oh man, you DJ all these cool clubs, you know, and like you got a lot of celebrities. And at this point, it was crazy, fucking embarrassing. I downsized in my building to a small place and she started paying the rent and she's paying like my bills and stuff and even gas. It was fucking crazy, man. Like, she even paid some of the notes on my fucking M3. And this was the lowest point of my 20s. This is actually probably one of the lowest points of my life. You know, this is the second time I'm being broke in my 20s. Um, second time I was being broke ever in life, actually. And, and then and that's what always drives me to, to just go forward. And uh, at least this time I had a girl who was helping me out. But I forgot to mention, she was crazy as fucking cat shit. This bitch was crazy as fuck. Okay. And that shit lasted like almost a year of dating with her. But like finally, I just bit the bullet and swallowed. I was like, fuck this. I was like, I can't do this no more. So I, I bit the bullet. I swallowed all my pride. And I called my sister. And I was like, Gene, listen, man, can I move in with you, please? You know, like I got nothing else now. I just need to fucking, I need to move in with you. And of course she said yes. And I moved in. And she lived in a dope ass house. You know, it was uh, just adjacent to Bel Air. It's right in the canyon, the hills. And um, the room that I had though, that's all she had was like 200 square feet. And like, I mean, it was fucking tiny. It was, it might've been a hundred square feet. Okay. Every belonging I had was in this room at that point. And I still had my BMW and I still had my Rolex. It was fucking pathetic, you know, cause I was trying to obviously, you know, portray this image that of me that didn't fucking exist at the time because I was literally broke. Right. I had like two pairs of shoes. I had some t-shirts. I had a couple pairs of pants, a couple pairs of shorts. And I had like a jacket and I had 12 crates of records. Um, I kept my records inside the garage, but uh, I had to keep my return tables at my friend's house because, you know, so I had to practice there. And um, I started doing some AT and over clubs for like $300 a night. I started saying, fuck this. I'm just going to start DJing like, you know, not even shit. That's not even cool. I don't give a fuck. So I started DJing Tuesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. So I'm making like $1,400, $1,500 a week, which is incredible money, right? It's like great money. So finally, I get to move out of my sister's crib and I get an apartment in Sherman Oaks with some of my homies. But like, I barely knew these guys. At this point, because I had so much paper from moving packs and moving, uh, moving pounds, I would only DJ the biggest parties, right? And it was good because these parties pay me a lot of money and that was like the alibi and how I was really, you know, like, how are you really getting your money? Some people kind of knew. They're like, yo, this is fucking bullshit. And the perception of me having fresh ass kicks, a super dope ass car, all that shit, just my whole image, it made promoters and people think I was actually somebody way bigger than I actually was. You know, and honestly, I still think I was a part of some major shit in hip hop history and the fact that I was Asian even made it more crazy, you know? And so like, you know, in like uh, 2001, I copped a Porsche Carrera, right? Um, what year was 9-11? I forgot what year it was. Anyways, I, popped, I, I copped the 996 
Porsche Carrera C4S, and you couldn't tell me shit at this point. I just thought I was the fucking coolest motherfucker in the world. My credit sucked, but I had cash coming in from hustling, and I was pulling up to fucking Las Palmas, the hottest club in Hollywood, in a Porsche Carrera with crates in the front of the fucking, of the, of the car, you know what I mean? Because the Porsche has the trunk in the front. And my, my car was parked in the front of the club. My ego was so big, it wouldn't fucking fit in the club, you know? And to make things even crazier, I jumped back into, you know, Aftermath fam, and I started uh, DJing for Hitman. It's just crazy, you know? I, I get back to working with Dre again. Hitman was from Fairfax, too. You know, Hitman's OG. Man, goddamn, man. Shout out to Hitman. I haven't talked to Hitman in so long. And Hitman was Dre's main writer at the time. In fact, he wrote like 85% of Dr. Dre's rhymes on fucking the 2001 album, you know? You know, I guess like I said, it was supposed to be called The Chronic 2000, but like Suge hated on him and put out an album called The Chronic 2000. And um, there had to be a leak. There had to be some dude inside Aftermath that was leaking info to fucking, uh, to Suge. Someone in Aftermath was just crazy. And um, uh, Hitman was the only person that had a single, uh, had, had his own solo song on, on the 2001 album. And I remember going in there, we're making a song for Hitman's album and uh, ended up being track number seven, I think, on 50 Cent's get rich or die trying album but it's like a gunshot click it was like and it was like a dope ass beat i remember i was with dre at record one in studio b making the beat and then finally we're almost finished with it went into studio a and uh as we're going over these beats i remember someone walked into the studio and was like yo dre so what's up you want to make two hundred fifty thousand dollars and dre was like who's the artist and i won't say who the artist was i feel bad and he said the artist he's like nah man i'm cool after taxes it's only 125 anyway so i'm cool so we started continuing making this beat and i'm helping him like you know going over fucking sounds and drums and everything loops and he looks at me and dre turns to me with his head turns to the left and looks at me dead in the face and he goes yo bang yang you ain't making records yet and when he said that thinking about that moment when i could have bought studio equipment with rich and all that shit Every single thing inside my body just exited me. I just, all my courage, my pride, everything was like, yo, the biggest producer in the fucking entire world is telling me he can't believe that I didn't fucking, you know, that obviously basically, even though DJs make a shit ton of money, it's just, I could have made more money being a DJ and a fucking producer like fucking Avicii and, and, and you know, Calvin Harris and these other guys and Dead Mouse, whatever. But I was just, fuck, man. It's fucking crazy. I just felt so stupid, man. You know what I mean? And I wasn't just DJing on tour with, with Hitman, but like I was on tour with like Limp Biscuit and just like I forgot to fucking mention I was a, I was a DJ for a punk rock band called Snot, and they're assigned to Geffen. In fact, um, we did a lot of legendary rock shows, and uh, System of a Down got signed at one of our shows, and another one of my homies from high school, another alumni from my high school, Dave Benvenisti, he became their manager. And got them that deal. And uh, they blew the fuck up. System of Down is a fucking enormous rock band. Enormous. And did I, I forgot to mention, I was DJing all over the place. At this point, like, you know what I'm saying? Any DJ getting $500 a night was big time, right? You had to be either DJ Am or Mark Ronson or like someone big. I was getting like $800 a night at a club in LA or, you know, like 1200 or so in New York. I was getting 2000 or 3000 for parties, you know, private parties. And I would literally DJ for like two hours at most. I was so sick. After Dre told me that shit, I was just sick of DJing, right? And I had crowd control, so it was so easy. Um, I forgot to mention, speaking of like all those fucking big house DJs, I was the first DJ back in 97 to have a billboard in Vegas before Steve Aoki, before fucking, in fact, I helped Steve, fucking Steve DJ early on in his DJ career before fucking Diplo 
and like Calvin Harris. This is when like fucking I'd be at a party and Steve would try to DJ on a Serato and he have like 125 BPM pop record and he's trying to mix it and blend it with the fucking 88 BPM like hip hop record. I was just fucking crazy. But uh, yeah, back then I was DJing at the joint and I had a billboard and end up turning into babies and shit. And uh, you know, again, the early 2000s, like this is when DJ AM just started taking over. Me and him were at like each other's neck. And then he just, he took over the fucking world and I wasn't mad. Like, if he was still alive, he'd be bigger than all those fucking guys out right now. Am had no idea I was selling weed. You know what I mean? He hated on me so fucking much. It was crazy. I just, I just got over it. You know, he, there was like this jealousy thing that whatever, I don't know if because I was fucking skinny, I had no idea. And it was just me and me being real. I don't give a fuck respectful. This is real homie shit. This is how I talk with homicide. We talk about a lot of crazy things. And um, once he became like, once Am became super famous, I thought he would chill out. But he didn't, you know what I mean? I was like, yo, bro, you got the spotlight, do your thing. You know, he deserved it, 10,000%, you know? And uh, to be real, like, when we were competing with each other, I was, like, getting scared. I was like, fuck, man, this dude's trying to take my jobs and shit, you know? Like, DJing was my only income, so I was real scared that he would end up taking my place completely, and eventually he did, but he just went surpassed me, and there was a bunch of other DJs came and spawned after that, you know? He started DJ management shit, but, you know, once I realized that I was going to be a DJ forever, and Dre telling me, like, you know, you had access to all my drum loops and everything. People would kill for this shit. I could have taught you the basics and everything. It just, it just fucked me up. I just didn't want to DJ anymore. You know, I fell out of love with it, you know. I began to pre-record my fucking mixes. You know what I mean? Even for like a regular ass nightclub, I would literally pre-record my mixes. I would even fucking pre-record shout outs because I knew who would be in the fucking club that night. And uh, I brought my Xbox with me in this little eight inch television I'd plug in. I'd literally play my mixes there. And I'd maybe DJ for like 20 minutes while I was switching CDs. And I paid a security guard like 7,500 bucks extra to keep everyone out of the DJ booth. And this is at the Dragonfly, right? It's a legendary nightclub as well. And I was just like, fuck this shit. Also, for the first time <laughs> during this time, I fell in love for the first time. Like I really fell in love as a grown ass man. I started dating this girl. She was a model who actually really modeled for real as a lit for a living runway, everything. And uh, she was a lot younger than me. She was like eight years younger than me. I didn't give a fuck, right? And I was fucking whooped. And, uh, you know, I'd follow her to Europe and Asia. She did a lot of campaigns out there. And um, we would go to Cabo like every other month. Literally, life was so fucking good, right? And um, at the same time, during this time, like I started doing marketing for Nike, like for real, like Nike Corporation, right? I started doing my marketing for them while DJing some parties there and shit and everything. And uh, Nike bought, they just bought Jim Morrison from the doors, Jim Morrison's estate, or his, I'm sorry, they bought his house on Venice Beach. And, uh, they call it the Blue House, BLU. And this was like a secretive marketing lifestyle project. It was like a super like, it was a low key thing. And like so many legends came out of that place and legends were there. And it was just, I remember like talking to Bari from, from V-Loan and Bari be like, yo, you a part of that shit? Like motherfucker, you have no idea how much shit I've been a part of. Like so many cool people who know about things had no idea how much shit I've been a part of in my entire life. That's one of the main fucking reasons why I'm telling this fucking story so that not just the Asian people, but I really want to motivate the Asian people because they feel like they feel like they still don't have a voice and they can't like get in, you know what I mean? Where they fit in. Anyways, going back to the Blue House, we had a gang of epic times there, super epic times. And, uh, my boy B Win, another Asian dude, he ran that house and he was, you know, working for Nike as an employee, as marketing. And he got my job with Nike. So B was in the music business a little bit after I, you know, got into it. And uh, he was one of the only other Asians and he stayed in longer than I did. When I got out of it, he was there. He worked for Loud Records. 
And then he ran Steve Rifkin's marketing team, SRC. And uh, again, he was one of the only other Asian comrades I had in the music business. 